How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. This movie's really good, by the way. Have you guys seen it? <laughs> no, I didn't watch. I didn't watch this one. Yeah, I've never seen. I it. watched. It was called Volume Two. So I watched that. It didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Got to see the first one. Oh, there's. Oh, well, hello and welcome to the. No. God. Damn well, hello it. and welcome. <laughs> <to> <laughs> this is a podcast where we dive deep into all of your favorite cult and genre cinema. And give you everything you ever wanted to know about them, including where the bodies are buried. I don't know why I said that. It's just like the only thing. I've, it's just. I'm Gary honestly. Horn. I think I'm, I'm one of the like, hosts. That sounds great. I, I mean, I think that opens up a new avenue for this podcast. And there's a body like, that gets buried. I didn't even think about that till right now. But somebody does get buried in this movie. So well, it's a live person. Yeah. Does it count as? Does that count? As, it's still a Gary, body. We're, we've done like twenty. We're like twenty episodes in probably on this series <laughs> at least. And you're you still don't know the name of the show? For some reason. I still want to say the at the beginning. Oh, I think it's because I still of think of the psychotronic film study. After so many years, you get that implanted in your brain. It's hard to to shake it. Well, I, when I when brain. I write, if I write it out, I put, you know, is part of the Cinema Shock podcast, but I don't capitalize the. So it's like uh, that's still not correct. But like, why are we talking about like, this, Gary? Introduce yourself. <laughs> I already said Who I'm Gary this? Horn. All right, I'm Justin Bishop, and we're joined today by, uh, well, we are honored to have... It's Todd. Todd is here. Todd's here again. But listen, <laughs> I, I, I'm usually the one with the sight gags, but you, listeners, you couldn't see the air quotes he put around honored. <laughs> uh, Todd is here uh, again, and he, hey everybody. he's been here every week since Cinema Shock has started. Not every for like, week. Except Not for the time week. he tried to kill himself with COVID. <laughs> Well, and Listen. the time that he just decided to hang out in Asheville. Oh, yeah, he randomly we went scared. somewhere else. So. so that's two, I, you know. Yeah, yeah, something like terrible. that. It's the, it's the worst average of the three of us. That's true. That's Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, here we are. This is the end of the road, guys. Last episode of Cinema Shock. Don't make me voice <laughs> I mean, in now. The, the it's, last... a, it's been a wonderful experiment, guys. I think, I think. Last episode of our Six Degrees of Kill Bill series. For the last six weeks, we've discussed all of these films that have been major influences on Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. But this week, we're finally going to see what all of that influence led up to as we discuss the film itself, or rather, I guess, the films themselves. So this week, we're going to talk about the story behind Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1, and Kill Bill Volume 2. Come on! Not too long ago, I was quite the professional. My friends and I, we were the creme de la creme in an exclusive industry. And we all worked for this man, Bill. Then one day, I decided to leave. 
settle down and start a new life. But when I tried to get out, they did me in. Don't you ever wake up. I guess they should have tried a little harder. So I suppose it's a little late for an apology, huh? You suppose correctly. Now it's kill or be killed. You have every right to want to get even. Get even? Even, Stephen? I would have to kill you. That'd be about square. And I choose kill. One ticket to Tokyo, please. One way. That woman deserves her revenge. No kidding, I heard it was kind of hard. Silly Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords. You didn't think it was going to be that easy, did you? For a second there? Yeah, I kind of did. Silly rabbit. Hard part's over. I wonder which trailer Gary played. Was it one or two? I was two? literally thinking the same thing. I wonder what I did here. I, yeah. Like, did I like put them together somehow? Try Is there to a whole bloody the affair tra- trailer you could have mm. found possibly? At this point, as we're talking about this, the listener already knows the answer to all of these questions. It's true. So it's, it's a weird, weird time travel thing. Right I will, uh, based on something you just said, the whole bloody affair, by the way, when I was watching it this time, there's a point where she says, now you know the whole gory story. Or something like that, or that's the whole gory story. And I'm like, why would that be the name of it? Why is it the whole bloody affair? The affair is more fun, personally. I like the whole gory story. Well, it's not your decision, Gary. You're right. It should be, though. I guess. (laughs) If it was was my decision, it would still be alive. Check your phone, Gary. Did QT call you? So... Normally on this show, the general concept of our podcast is we discuss one film per episode, but in the case of this one, we thought it would be a good idea to, to discuss the two volumes of Kill Bill together because although they do, I think they work very well as two separate films, like a part one and part two, I think that cliffhanger at the end of part one is incredible, but they were, of course, originally conceived as a single film, only to be split up much later into the production process. So now this is the part of the show when we start talking about a movie where we might get into kind of an extensive look at the director, the filmmaker's life and career that led up to this point. But for Quentin Tarantino, I'm not going to really do that because for one, I have to imagine that we're going to dive pretty deep into his filmography later down the line. I mean, these are all films that we're probably going to want to discuss at some point. Plus I imagine that most of our listeners are pretty familiar with Tarantino anyway. Uh, Everyone knows he worked at a video store called Video Archives in Los Angeles in the 1980s. Uh, You might even know they had a role as an Elvis impersonator on an episode of the Gilmore Girls. Wow, that would have been a good episode. (laughs) (laughs) The Golden Girls. And and he used some of the money that he made from that to help produce his debut film, Reservoir Dogs. That film, of course, was a big hit at Sundance and was an integral part of the indie film movement of the 90s. Todd, before you, that- before you ask, I, I I could see Todd, he has something to say, and I already know, uh, I'll tell you, it's season four, episode six of The Golden <laughs> Girls. Uh, my wife's been re-watching the show, so she was able to take me right to it when I told her, and it's an episode where Sophia is getting remarried, and Rose ends up messing up the invitations and invites a bunch of Elvis impersonators to the oh, wedding. Rose. 
And uh, yeah, so you definitely can see Quentin. He's in the second row of Elvis impersonators. He stands out. <laughs> no lines though, right? No lines, except they all sing at the end. According well, to him, com- he to- was playing the actual Elvis and all of the others were sellouts. <laughs> well, not to divert completely from what you were talking about there, Gary, but who do you think talks faster, Quentin Tarantino or Rory and Lorelai? Oh, wow. I think he would have fit right in, actually. Though. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's a good that's a good point. Right. Uh, and he's and he he has said that like I think he got he got paid like nothing like 500 bucks or something to be on the show but because Golden Girls was like in so syndication that he his residual checks for that are still like three grand a year or something like that for appearing that's awesome yeah pretty crazy yeah so after Reservoir Dogs his follow-up is Pulp Fiction we all know Pulp Fiction I'm sure again we'll probably get into that down the line because it's an iconic film and probably the film that put him on the map to most of like the general public his follow-up Pulp fiction success was jackie brown which is an adaptation of an the uh, an elmore leonard novel called rum punch and then his original plan was to follow up jackie brown with a movie called inglorious bastards but he put that idea on hold to work on an idea that he had begun developing a few years earlier so the idea this idea was originally conceived by tarantino and uma thurman during the production of pulp fiction uh, if you notice when you're watching Kill Bill, in the opening credits, it says the the character of the bride was created by Q and U, being Quentin and Uma. They had come up with this idea that they were having drinks at the bar during a a break in filming of Pulp Fiction. And the idea was simple. Like, it it was, they had this image in their mind of a woman who's been bloodied and beat. Uh, You see, like, a close-up of her, her face. And the camera pulls back. And this was Uma's kind of contribution to this idea. The camera pulls back to reveal that she's in a wedding dress. And th- this kind of came about because Tarantino was saying, you know, hey, I've, you know, let's do a revenge movie. They're having this conversation saying this to Uma. Let's do this revenge movie where you're like this killer assassin, kind of inspired by the uh, deadly viper uh, or, or what, what do they call it? The um, Fox Force 5, the character that she talks about playing in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Mm. And then Uma says, oh, yeah, what about when you reveal her, she's in a wedding dress? And then that's kind of how the bride was born. Yeah, I um, was able to find some interviews and stuff and piece it together, this conversation. And it went something like, hey, Quentin, I want to be in a movie. All right. Well, okay. So listen, what we're going to do is we're going to do Fox Force 5, okay? All right. So, no, just kidding. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm glad that ended when it did, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) We just, we need to bring Miles on to do that, is what I'm saying. Uh, So according to the different interviews, um, they they were at a place called the Daily Pint. That was the name of the place. I even looked it up. It's in Santa Monica. And uh, one of the discussions that was going on that he had been having with Uma, which I found interesting was that Uma was actually about to quit acting. She was, she was kind of done. She had uh, said she'd been losing interest. Uh, She'd had some roles here and there that were okay, but she just had a lot of bad experiences in Hollywood and the whole process just wasn't fun for her anymore. More on that later, I'm sure. But for QT, he just couldn't fathom this. He talks about loving movies and movie making and the whole process, et cetera. So his excitement would, he was hoping his excitement could get her back to the point where she said, like, eventually she, she, I'm sorry, eventually she did come around to where she was like, I think I'm done after this movie, but like, when you make a movie, I'll come back and be in it. And he was trying to like, he made it like one of his goals during Pulp Fiction to like make her excited about movie making. And then he wanted to get her interested in more ideas 
So as they were talking, he starts throwing out ideas and they start talking about strong female leads. And so it leads into this conversation about exploitation film and genre movies. And he's talking to her about how for all the talk there is about like female characters in movies, like genre films never have that problem. Genre films always have the best female leads. Like they always, there's so many strong female characters in genre and uh, especially in their own way in revenge movies. And so he's like telling her about this. He's like using Pam Greer as an example. And so he's explaining to her that a lot of these films, you know, like they start out, the woman's battered and beaten and the characters are looking down and all of this, you know, and that's how it starts. But then she goes on this path of revenge and stuff and says that Uma comes in is like, that's how it's fun. Like, what if the camera pans back and she's in a bridal gown? And he said, and you know, as his words were, the bride was born right then. Uh, nice. and he said later that night, he went home and wrote like eight pages of it. Uh, but then he ended up falling by the wayside. Like he kind of just tucked it away. Yeah. So what happens is later, a few years later, in the year 2000, at an Oscar party, Uma runs into Tarantino and asks him if he's made any more progress on this idea. And he's like, he has not. <laughs> but he promises her that he'd write the script as a birthday present to her. And he's like, I'll be done with it in about two weeks. So the two-week thing didn't quite happen. And instead, Tarantino spent a year and a half working on the script. Uh, this was 2000, 2001, and he was living in New York City at the time. And Uma was living in New York. So he would visit her, her new more daughter, uh, Maya, Maya Hawk, who uh, we all probably know from Stranger Things now, of course. He, she is also in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I did but, not know that. Oh, oh she's one of the Manson girls. I did not oh. realize that. Holy crap. Wow. So while... Tarantino wrote the script entirely on his own. He would often discuss it with Uma. Uh, he'd write a bit. She'd read it. They'd hang out, discuss it, go back and forth, you know. What Tarantino tells about this writing period is that, you know, the, the Uma that he's hanging out with in 2000, 2001 wasn't the same 24-year-old kid that had worked with him on Pulp Fiction. She's she's a few years older. She'd matured. She's a mother now. She's a very different person. She's had changes in her life that have changed her as a person. And all of these things kind of colored how he approached writing that character in the script. And the way that he tells it, Tarantino, when he's writing a script, he's not really going by an outline of the plot. He writes it beginning to end. He doesn't like have a, he, does, he's not, he doesn't have a bunch of uh, index cards taped to a bulletin board where he's got plot points. He's just writing a story to see where it takes him, at least on that first draft, that first run through. So, when he's writing Kill Bill, he didn't know as he's writing it that the bride's daughter was still alive until he got much further into the story. He says, there's a quote from him. This is from an interview I want to say with IGN where he says, I got to tell you, I didn't really know that BB was alive for like the first year of writing it. It was only in the last four or five months of the writing process that I realized that BB was alive. Until then, I was like Uma's character. I didn't know. And I was just going on getting revenge. When he wrote those eight pages originally, he like tossed them aside. He, he became super focused on his World War II movie. Uh, of course, we're talking about Inglorious Bastards, but he worked on that for like five years. And he says that every single day he was working on that movie uh, and he became obsessed with it, but he was having so much trouble with it because he just couldn't end the movie. Um, he said he was just having trouble letting it go for some reason. And he said he had like 220 pages of what was supposed to be a screenplay but he's like, you know, that's just not going to work. And he writes like in this 
novel form i was going to get there but like he, he writes like just page after page it's like a story not like a normal screenplay and like just uh straight like just straight narrative yeah like he's he's talking about just like writing it out oh it's like wow. he's, he described it in this one interview i saw it's like not like a novel but sort of and uh yeah and he said he after he met uma again and she asked about it he started thinking about it and he decided to go back and look at those eight pages he had written of of kill bill and he said he picks it up and he reads it and he's like you know not to do my own horn but it's pretty damn good and he decides well maybe maybe if i give this one some time uh and just flush my mind of the world war ii thing for a little bit i can come back to that and be ready because i know exactly what i want here this is going to be quick clean easy a tight 90 minute exploitation movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh so when he began writing the movie he originally thought that Bill wouldn't show up on screen until the very end. Like that was kind of his idea. He he kind of envisioned him like Colonel Kurtz, like Marlon Brando's character in Apocalypse Now, where he's talked about and his presence like is felt throughout the film, but you don't actually see him until the very, very end. And at the time he's writing this, he thinks that Warren Beatty is perfect for the part. He's always wanted to work with Warren Beatty, uh, who's a legend. And he began writing the part with Beatty in mind, even going so far as to discuss it with Beatty, saying, you know, hey, I want you for this role. It's going to be pretty easy on your part because your guy doesn't show up until the very end of the movie. But he, as he began to write and began to kind of discover the character of, the Bill, of Bill and discover the story, the character began to appear in the film more and more, and he kind of had to rethink where he was going with the character. And he knew that as he did this, that that would mean there's going to be more of a time commitment from whoever played him and some martial arts training. It became a bigger deal than what he'd led Beatty to believe. So he didn't want this to be like his first collaboration with Warren Beatty, where he's like, yeah, I told you you'd be here for like three days. And turns out you're going to have to fly to China. You're going to have to do martial arts training. You know, so he starts going in a different direction and rewrote the character eventually with David Carradine in mind. According to Tarantino, um, Bruce, Bruce Willis was also briefly considered for the role and had also been offered to Jack Nicholson, Kurt Russell, Mickey Rourke, and Burt Reynolds, all of whom turned it down. Of course, he would go on to work with Kurt Russell a couple of times later on. He was supposed to work with Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds was supposed to be in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the uh, the role that Bruce Stern ends up playing the um, at Spawn Ranch, but unfortunately Burt Reynolds died before that happened. Do of those you know four or five folks that were just listed, do either of you have one that if it had to be someone other than David Carradine, which it's kind of weird to picture anybody else other than David Carradine playing this role. Anyone else on that list? Yeah, Kurt Russell. You'd go Kurt Russell, Gary. Uh, hands down, I could see Kurt Russell. I could see Warren Beatty. Like I mean, I could. I could see Warren Beatty. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I was like, eh. Nicholson would be a hard sell to me. Yeah, uh, Mickey well, see, Rourke I, could Mickey Rourke could probably do it, but Kurt Russell's got that cowboy swagger down. Yeah. You know? Well, see, I was going for the voice because a lot of what we, a lot of the interaction we get with the character is voice. So I'd I was go like, Kurt Russell on Nich the voice too. Yeah, I guess. I, I I don't know. I was just feeling Nicholson there, but but I mean, we all I'll, have to. If you you hear Nicholson's voice and all you hear is. Jack Nichols. That, that's, yeah, that's what I was that's, saying. I feel yeah, that way true. with Burt Reynolds, too. I feel like they both are pretty. Yeah, I was like, I can't get past the laugh, man. <laughs> uh, according to Tarantino, he'd always kind of loved David Carradine anyway. So he, he called him one of those mad genius actors who always just delivers. Even in a shitty genre movie, you can count on him to bring Which he made it. a lot of. Yeah, which he made a lot of. <laughs> uh, 
He said he'd also, interestingly enough, had been reading his autobiography, Endless Highway, and was just fascinated by him. Said that yeah. the way he wrote and the stories he told, he, he calls him a mix of Dickens and Kerouac. Wow. Uh, he said wow. he started rethinking things. By then, he, uh, by chance, also tells a story where he liked that book so much, he had gifted it to Ethan Hawke. And Ethan Hawke, apparently they're buddies or something, or were at the time. And, well, Ethan uh, Hawke is married to Uma Thurman. Oh, so. well, that, maybe that makes sense. <laughs> there you go. I did not but, know that either. So <laughs> I mean, but yeah, it's... Do you it's not really remember to... that her daughter's name is Maya Hawke? I did not put it together, oh. Justin. I'm sorry. <laughs> Congratulations, audience. I'm an idiot. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but to just go back, David Carradine really, really just really takes command. I mean, he's just got a tight grip, like a like a stranglehold on, on this, on this role. So, well, he says, uh, when he gave that book to Ethan Hawke, they'd, well, this makes more sense that he would have been talking to him about Kill Bill, uh, because, uh, he said he had to like Ethan Hawke had knew about the story or something because Ethan Hawke called him to say, after he'd read the book, he just gave it to him because they had similar tastes and stories. And, uh, Ethan Hawke called him and told him, man, this guy should be Bill. And uh, so he said it was actually even by suggestion of Ethan Hawke, too. They both kind of had the same idea. Nice. So other members of the cast include, of course, frequent Tarantino collaborator Michael Madsen. But you've also got uh, Daryl Hannah, Vivica A. Fox, and Lucy Liu as the other members of the Deadly Viper assassination squad. And one of my favorite bits of casting. International Viper assassination squad. The Divas. The Divas. Yeah, <laughs> and one of my favorite bits of casting in this is uh, Hattori Hanzo, which is played by Sonny Chiba, uh, known for his Street Fighter series of movies. Which, of course, if you've seen uh, True Romance, which is written by Tarantino, uh, Christian Slater goes to a, a Street Fighter Sonny Chiba marathon with Alabama towards the beginning of the movie. So uh, his his love for Sonny Chiba and Street Fighter goes well well before this movie. Yeah, he that that scene in the in the sushi bar when Uma first arrives there in Okinawa is it's one of my favorite it's sequences really, it's in really, the entire movie. I mean, it's it's cool, but it's also really funny too. I really it's really, really it's a little slapstick it. comedy. Yeah, it's a little slapstick comedy until she reveals who she is, and then it gets yeah. serious and it switches tone so so very yeah, well. Just, yeah, really. I tell you what, like people will talk some shit about Quentin Tarantino, and I'm sure we'll talk about people talking about talking shit. But the uh, one of the things he is great at is taking these actors that people just like that would have slipped through the cracks, or you know, I, I don't want to say slipped through the cracks, but we're like a niche audience would would know them, and like putting them on screen in roles that like perfectly accent everything about them and so anyway that that just reminded Absolutely. me of that with Hattori Hanzo yeah. like he's just immediately watching it this time I'm like that guy's so cool so well, I think he writes so with cool. I think he writes with such a specific voice that you know the people that can play that role get it gets narrowed down real quick I mean you look at some roles where it's just like and here's the 20 a-listers that could have played him but like well you the know, thing with this, is that with, with like, someone like Sonny Chiba is that he's known for action movies and he doesn't get an action right. scene. He's not, he, he's getting by purely on how charming he is, honestly. Yeah. In those yeah. Scenes. No, yeah, you're right. Uh, which is, which is a really fun kind of subversion of what you would expect from somebody putting Sonny Chiba in the movie, especially as a guy who's a samurai sword master. Right. And yet you never see him do anything with a sword except hand it over to her. 
Right. Uh, of course, you've also got Gordon Liu. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago here on the show. He plays both Johnny Moe, uh, the leader of the Crazy 88, and then most memorably, to me at least, is Pai Mei, uh, a character oh, yeah. who has appeared in all kinds of uh, kung fu movies in the past. Uh, so Pai Mei, Tarantino had actually originally planned to play the part himself, which is That's weird, problematic. Yeah. Uh, but before he decided idea. that the film was too complex for him to both act and direct. And in the original script... Uh, and I should tell this fun little story. In in about 2000, I got a copy of the script and read it well before the movie came out because uh, I was so excited about it. And I ended up finding someone online that had a copy of the script. And it's, first of all, the script is pretty damn close to the final film. I think the version I read was probably a, a pretty late draft. Way to spoil it for yourself, script, Justin. I know, which I would normally never do, but I think I was just so stoked about this movie and the the idea of reading a new Tarantino script that no one had ever seen. I just got the better of me. But in that original script, Pai Mei is written as having all of his dialogue like badly dubbed. So like Gordon Liu would be speaking in Cantonese and then you've got an American dub and Tarantino, it's even written in the script, was going to dub the voice himself, which honestly <laughs> could have been kind of, funny but it's not a funny sequence so i think he made the good choice to to take that part good out point. yeah and gordon lewis with everything with everything going on there i think that would have taken away from it yeah and gordon lewis just so good yeah he's really good and i want really eyebrows good. like that yeah you know pi may means like white eyebrows i believe oh does it really <laughs> that's the actual i think that's the actual translation i love him eyebrows. just twirling that that Fu Manchu and just like throwing it behind his shoulder and stuff. Like it's just he's so he's so awesome. That's one of my favorite parts. It's of a movie. great sequence. It's Bunny's favorite sequence in the whole in the whole series, and it's really fun to watch. And just and the way that Uma plays it, and we'll I'm sure this whole episode we'll talk about how how good she is, but she really plays it like she's younger and more naive. Not just in like the way she talks, but also in just kind of like her body language and stuff. She comes across as someone who's not, she Accurate. she has not quite, yes. she has not quite become the killing machine that she would later be. Even yeah, but, though she's very well trained, she's not quite, she's not the, she's, she's not quite the person that we see fighting Vivica A. Fox in that opening scene. I was just about to say the person that she is by the campfire talking to Bill and walking up those steps to Pai Mei is very different from the person yeah. that rings on there's like a the, bubbliness to her that's uh, right door yeah a naivety almost yeah yeah another one of my favorite little small characters is uh gogo yubari played by uh chiaki kuriyama who she has not done a lot of stuff that most western audiences have probably seen but if you've ever seen her or anything other than kill bill it's probably battle royale which I'm sure is, I would almost guarantee is the reason that Tarantino cast her in this movie. I'm sure it is. She's also, I mean, I had read that he's a fan of these, but I don't know 100%, but she's also in Juon as well. Like the original. Is she in Juon? Yeah. She's the first super, one? Yes, the first one. She. I mean, not like a huge role, but she's in there. Gotcha. Um, but she plays a killer in Battle Royale. Yes, like you're correct. Like she's right. a psychopath. Which is more like this. <laughs> Actually, I mean, that just seems like her. I was like looking at stuff about her this time and like, uh, she had a a quote it was like uh i love playing gogo because the character is so extreme she's pretty close to my real character especially the fact that she liked her sword and lots of accessories wow. um, she's your favorite movie <laughs> as pulp fiction scott pilgrim and train spotting and she's watched seven three times in one day 
Wow. <laughs> I don't know whether to be impressed or scared or frankly horny. <laughs> she seems which like a part, lot of which fun. part of seven which part of seven makes you the horniest, Justin? <laughs> oh, it's the um when they find the it's the this the guy who's been tied to a bed for a year. Oh, well, natural. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, I get that. All right. See, nothing like gets me going as much as a morbidly obese person drowned in soup. Uh, so just as filming was set to begin uma thurman became pregnant so tarantino was less left kind of asking himself the question does he go forward by recasting the role or does he wait but as he felt like he's like i don't have a choice i mean first of all uma co-created this character this is her character but also he says there's a quote from, from Tarantino. The way I look at it is, yes, this is my samurai movie. Yes, this is my badass chick movie. Yes, this is my spaghetti western and my comic book movie. Yeah, it's all that stuff, but it's also my Joseph von Sternberg movie. And if Joseph von Sternberg is getting ready to make Morocco with Marlene Dietrich and Marlene Dietrich gets pregnant, he waits for Dietrich. So that's kind of how he saw it. Like, this is his muse, essentially. He's like, I can't do this movie without her. Well, it's funny you mention that because, yeah, the other one I always see him mention when people ask about that relationship is uh, Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina. He says that one's a little weirder for people to get a handle on because they got married or whatever. But he's like, no, it's just like what you said. She's, she's my muse. Yeah. So despite the fact that the film itself kind of jumps around in chronology the film was actually shot in sequence pretty much which is unusual especially for a movie this big but it was kind of necessary here because of some of the location shooting so and when i say in chronology i mean in chronology is like if you were to if you were to put kill bill in chronological order uh, okay that was so like the china I was just stuff, about to ask <laughs> the china stuff taking place first so they went they did a few months of martial arts training in America. Then the production went immediately to Beijing, shot there for four months before moving production to America. They shot on location and in some sound stages in America. And then finally they ended up in Mexico. And the film, this movie, it presented a pretty major change in style for Tarantino, uh, whose previous films, although they're, all of his stories kind of revolve around crimes, at least the previous ones prior to this, they were pretty light on action sequences. Like there, if you watch, I mean, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, and and Pulp Fiction, there really is not any. There really aren't any action scenes. There's people getting shot, you know, stuff, but nothing that you would categorize as an action sequence. So for this film, he actually had to kind of teach himself to shoot action, and that was sort of also a personal challenge to himself to learn how to shoot action. Well, I would think that um, having folks you know, these legends on set like Wu Ping and, you know, some of these action uh, action star guys probably helped. Well, yeah. I think he probably, yeah. I mean, I think that was probably, he brought them in because of what his goals were for the mm. film. Yeah, it's um, like killing killing a couple birds with, a, with one stone. He described it as like a really big deal for him to do this because, yeah, like Justin said, I mean, the Reservoir Dogs is a heist movie, but you don't ever actually see the heist, you know? No, the, the only bit of action you kind of see is the, the, a little bit of the shootout, but that's very chaotic and very like, uh, there's something, it's not, polished you know it's not mm. like a it's not like a sexy fight scene it's it's just all over the place well in one of the interviews i saw with him he talks about that 
there, you know, he, he's known as a writer director and this whole thing, but for him in order to make himself like, he's going to challenge himself to be a top director, like to prove, like, I think his actual way of describing it was like, where's my head hit the ceiling at, or can I break through to this next level for him to be a top director? He decided that he needed to be able to shoot action and he not proven that before. Uh, he always thought action directors were the most, uh, they're the cinematic. best, at least cinematically. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, like, again, he, I think in that same interview, he referenced the Coppola apocalypse now, like helicopter scene, at least like, you know, that visually there's just something more special there. They're on top of their game. That's wild. Cause I, I don't feel like, I don't feel like there's a, like there's a big connection between like the typical action movie director and someone who's gotten, you know, a lot of accolades for directing. Well, when he's saying cinematic, I think he means like you're as an action movie director. And I mean like a good action movie director, you have to tell everything. You have to tell everything in your story visually. Mm. Uh, You have to be able to tell it using the tools of filmmaking, not just anybody can tell a story using just words. That's easy. I mean, you know, it's, it's more uh, easy might not be the best word, but it's more conventional. And, you know, that's, that's the way we tell stories, but being able to tell a story visually and, and not all action movies do this. There are a lot of movies, action movies where the action sequences are very poorly choreographed or or poorly uh, geographed, like where you don't know where people are at one point. It's just a series of images, right? That never happens in this movie. And it never happens in a good action director's movie. Like I'm thinking of guys like, Let's say John McTiernan, great action just, movie director. I was just thinking, yeah. Uh, James Cameron, great action movie director. Mm-hmm. You know, the Wachowskis, great action movie directors. Uh, because those fight scenes have, they t- each each action sequence tells a story on its own. You know, and that's different than just blowing up a bunch of shit. Right. The other thing. So I think that's what he means when he says cinematically. That's cool. One of the uh, other things I thought was funny about this though too is he says uh or you know like we talked about the world war ii script the the 220 page thing um back to that real quick he he says like he doesn't write like normal screenplays uh at least at first they're more like that novel version um when he calls the other part the other version of it would be like a blueprint he said like the actual screenplay uh and he says since he's going to be directing the movie he figures so i can like clean this up a bit as i go along so he starts adding stuff to it stuff that he says he doesn't even intend to to film like just crazy scenes or like extra layers of character or whatever. Uh, so he knows he's, he's, he's got like this extra long book that he's trying to get down to a tight 90 minute screenplay. Um, he said he, he finally learned in this one, the value of the blueprint version uh, because he said he is he's writing all these extra scenes and extra layers and he realizes like while he's shooting this movie all of a sudden now not only does he have his novel version now he's having to adapt his novel into a screenplay for the movie <laughs> so <laughs> just a uh, extra process there um, so all in all the production on kill bill lasted 155 days this is just production like actual shooting not including pre-production and post had a budget of $55 million. And although $55 million seems low for two movies of this size, it actually went over budget. And uh, although, if we're being honest, Tarantino had carte blanche with the Weinsteins since he had spent the last decade making them a considerable amount of money. So like, even though he went over budget, I don't think it was ever that big a deal. Well, just to One, hammer on that a bit, go, going in, he, he already, you know, he knows it's going to go long, right? But 
it's too much for one movie as they're filming it. And he realizes that and he kids himself into thinking he obviously convinced himself he could get it down to 90, but then as he's making it, he realizes this is not going to be 90 minutes. There's no tight 90 minutes for Quentin Tarantino. So as they're filming, his next goal becomes like, he's thinking if I can get the first part down to 90, they'll let me have another hour and then I can just at least wrap it up there and essentially get a two and a half, three hour movie out of this. And it's actually Harvey Weinstein that was on set during like the last day of the filming. And he told Quentin that he'd rather him just go ahead and turn this into two films, which he obviously does. But he kind of liked that too, because I mean, he, he talks about, I mean, this is kind of on a tangent a little bit, but, but having it be two films, makes it work out well. He talks about the different ways that you could view the film and experience it either as one whole bloody affair or as a two-parter, or he even describes like if serials were still profitable, he could have seen it like as like each chapter is a little bit thrown before a feature, you know, and you'd still experience. Well, he, he did that. Ways. He kind of did that or was able to do something similar to that with the hateful eight later on with the extended version that's on Netflix. Oh, that's true. Into four different, Four different chapters, four different episodes. How did how did I not know this? <laughs> I don't know. It came out uh, a year or two to, ago. I mean, because I've seen. I mean, I've seen Hateful Egg, but I I haven't watched it. Um, yeah, it's a um, it's, the, it's that, an extended cut. It's an extended cut, and, and the the movie's already set into is cut into four chapters, and on Netflix it is separated as four separate episodes. Wow. So, so one sequence that contributed heavily to the film being over schedule was the House of Blue Leaf sequence that ends volume one. This sequence was scheduled for a two-week shoot, but it took a full eight weeks to shoot, two months. Uh, but Tarantino knew, shooting the scene, he knew he had to get this right. His goal with this sequence was to create, in his words, one of the greatest, most exciting sequences in the history of cinema. So to do so, to help, he hired legendary choreographer and martial arts film director Yoon Wo Ping to be the film's martial arts director. We've already mentioned him on this pod on this series of the podcast in the past during our 36 Chamber episode uh, because he directed a Drunken Master. That was his kind of calling card. That was Jackie Chan's breakthrough role. But he was a regular choreographer on on Hong Kong action movies, and he also was the choreographer for both Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and The Matrix, which is kind of what brought him to the attention of most. Western audiences. And Tarantino also wanted to shoot the film like the directors of those Shaw brother movies that he admired so much that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, he wanted to shoot them the way that they would have shot them. This meant no CGI and meant that the effects were all practical, including techniques used by Shaw director Chang Che, who we also discussed. Uh, and some, some of these uh, techniques included using fire extinguishers and condoms to create explosions of blood. They, they filled condoms with fake blood, and that's how you get a lot of those, like, big... It's a very specific type of blood spurt that you get in some of these that's very different from, like, a squib, uh, wow. the, the traditional Hollywood squib. Yeah, try it. Try... <laughs> Never mind. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, come on. Do you want to take that again, Gary? No, it's okay. I, that, that was going to be good. Anymore. That was going to be really good. I'm, I'm sure it would have been. <laughs> come on. Um, for the outtakes. For the outtakes. Ready? And... So anyway, his goal with volume one, he said, <laughs> became to boil down a revenge movie to its absolute essence. Back to proving that he's a top director. He wanted to create like this straightforward, just bare bones revenge movie for volume one. And in final, the finale would be like one of the greatest action moments ever on screen. 
Um, I think the ones, you know, I wish we didn't get to watch these for the series, but the two I saw him specifically reference when, when you get to the, uh, what he called the, the one versus 100 idea, he said comes from movies, uh, the Chinese boxer and uh, a movie called vengeance, uh, which actually in the scene where they go into the one versus a hundred, it turns into a black and white scene during that. And he said he saw the Chinese version later and the Chinese version doesn't do that. But that was only the version that got brought over here. So we'll see him do something similar to that too. So some of the guys, the guys who were responsible for the gallons and gallons of blood, and, and this is reportedly more than 400 gallons of blood <laughs> in the house of blue leaves sequence were the technicians at K and B effects group. The special all of, all of those gallons in one condom, by the way. <laughs> uh, KNB is the effects company founded by Robert Kurtzman, Greg Nicotero, and Howard Berger in 1988. Now, if you've been following our show, you know that we discussed KNB briefly a few months back during our Romero Savini series. Since Greg Nicotero was a protege of Savini's and got his start working on Romero's Day of the Dead, which is actually where he met Howard Berger. The Isn't three of them all—all all these things come together. Like I know that. it's all—it's all connected, man. And the three of them worked together on Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2 before deciding to form their own company. And they would go on, once they formed KNB, like KNB is legendary. And of course, they're now known very, very well for their work on, uh, on The Walking Dead. But they worked on everything from like uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street 5 to Dances with Wolves. Uh, Dances with Wolves is actually the, the film that got them known as more than just like a gore company because they created animatronic Buffalo on that. They, they created they mm. their work on that. And they were actually specifically requested by Kevin Costner because he'd seen some of their previous work and he wanted somebody to create these animatronic Buffalo. And that work actually led to work on like city slickers where they created an animatronic calf. So they're doing more than just gore effects. They're very innovative in their techniques. The weird part is, is Kevin Costner had hired them to make an animatronic Buffalo for his bedroom and then realized later as he got cast for uh, Dances with Wolves. And they also provided him the condoms full of blood. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Their relationship with Tarantino began with Tarantino's Reservoir Dog. So Kurtzman had conceived of a project and he had this idea. He had written a treatment and he hired Tarantino to flesh that treatment out into a full screenplay. And in return, Kurtzman's like, hey, if you do this, you turn this idea that I have into a screenplay, we'll have KNB do the effects on Reservoir Dogs. And specifically the, the torture scene where, where uh, Mr. Blonde cuts the, the guy's ear off. Uh, the screenplay, by the way, that resulted in that would be produced in 1996 and is named From Dusk Till Dawn. Oh, yeah, I like that pretty, pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I love From Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah, and then they would they would work later on Pulp Fiction as well. They did some work together. So, uh, But for, for Kill Bill, K&B spent 14 weeks on location on the film, followed by six more months of soundstage shooting in Los Angeles. And it's K&B that's responsible for all of those limbs that you see in the house of blue leaves, every decapitation, a lot of, a lot of all of that blood spurts, all of it, all of it practical, not a single CGI shot in all of that. Nice. So one thing they did one, one bit of tech that Berger developed that came in handy involved electromagnets. This is really cool. This was uh, from Cinefx magazine uh, did a really great feature on K and BFX's work on, on kill bill, which is where all this information came from. Cause they, they interviewed uh, the guys for it. And they so so what they did with 
Berger and his crew made fiberglass cup sections that would attach to the actors, to, to their clothing. And these cups held magnets that were hooked to a power source, a power source with like a battery and a switch. And then they made fake limbs with metal pieces in them that would bond to the magnets when the electricity was turned on. So then when the crew flipped the switch and killed the power, the limbs would fall off. So cool. Yeah. So when somebody get a, gets an arm chopped off, they just switch, flip the switch and that arm flies off. That's crazy. It's really, it's sort of low tech in a way. Cause it's such a like basic piece of technology, but it's like wild that nobody had ever done that before, but what, also, it'd be really fun to be the guy flipping the switch on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and there he is with two arms, and now it's gone. <laughs> and even in the sequence when Oren Ishii loses the top of her head, I always thought that gag was CGI until I saw some behind the scenes footage of like Lucy Liu wearing a prosthetic and like chumming it with with uh, with Uma Thurman, like all smiles <laughs> and stuff. And she had the thing on her head. I always thought it was CGI until I saw that because I'm like, how the fuck did they do that? Because normally you add something to someone's head. And it makes them look like they have a Frankenstein head, but that isn't really the case in this one. And the way that they did it is they created this piece to put on Lucy Liu's head, but they used uh, like forced perspective on it. So they created it to where it was like, if you looked at it, like from any other angle, it wouldn't look right. But the way that they did it, it's, it's kind of at an angle on her head, but when it's filmed straight on, it looks like a straight cut. Oh, it's wow. all forced perspective. It's really crazy the way that they did it. It's oh, really awesome. I've I've never heard of that being done before, but it's really cool. And then uh, KNB also designed the effects to turn Gordon Liu into Paime. And for Michael Parks, who plays Sheriff Earl McGraw in volume one, but is transformed into an 80-year-old Mexican pimp in volume two. Yeah, I don't know why they used him other than that Michael Parks is a is a badass. Yeah, I was gonna say, can we just take a second to discuss how badass Michael Parks is in both movies? In both parts. Yeah. And like normally I'd be like, why not just get a why not just get a a Hispanic person to play a Mexican? But then when you watch this, you're like, yeah, but he's he's really good. Really good. (laughs) He's just really good. Uh you know, and but volume one, I mean, he's, and of course that same character appears in, uh, from dusk till dawn and, a and lot of movies and, <laughs> uh, in grindhouse. Yeah. Him, him and his son, which is actually his real life son playing mm-hmm. his son, uh, appears in, in grindhouse, both parts of grindhouse. If I, if I remember correctly, but yeah, Michael parks is amazing. Yeah. And I love, I mean, I would watch a whole, I would watch Sheriff Earl McGraw in like a TV series or a whole series of films. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just, yeah, I think absolutely. he's amazing. I love yeah. that guy, but he's also really great as, as what's his name? Esteban. At Esteban the Vallejo. He is so good. Like he's just, yeah. there's something about Michael Parks is one of those actors who is so charismatic on screen. Yeah. There's just something that radiates. You just hang on to every word that he says. Got that shot. I mean, got that shot right about here. And just you're locked into every word that's coming out of his mouth. And it's just, yeah, I, yeah, it's worth yeah, the price. I of love vision. the visual examples on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. You know, that's what I bring. That's what I bring. That's the extra bit. Todd likes to bring the visual uh, aspect to, uh, to the <laughs> nothing audio works, format. Nothing, wor- nothing works better in audio, like a close visual. A close up. Zoom in for a close up as I say this. <laughs> for you, for some, for, for some, for a movie that has so much great dialogue in it, 
as as all Tarantino movies do. Like Michael Parks has some of my favorite lines. Like my one of my favorites when we when he discovers the bride. That whole sequence when he discovers uh, the the massacre. But this tall drink of cocksucker. I have that dead. written down right here. <laughs> tall, this tall drink of cocksucker is one of my favorite lines in the movie. I was like, that's and what I want to say solely, for later. It's solely because of his delivery on it, too. Yeah, <laughs> I I always laugh just like I always just laugh again because of the delivery when he first walks in the gravy Marie. <laughs> it gets so it makes good. me laugh every he time. Is so good, man. Yeah. I love him. So anyway, back back to K and B effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for for Bud's death, Michael Madsen's character, uh, they created several mechanical snakes. So back to doing the uh, animatronic thing. And also they had to create three stages of makeup for Michael Madsen. Like, you know, throughout that scene, as like his wounds, his snake bites get bigger and grosser, those they had to change the, the prosthetics each time. And then for the fight scene between Daryl Hannah and Uma Thurman inside of Bud's trailer, they they were kind of forced to think on their feet because Tarantino had made a last minute decision to change the way that the scene was going to be shot. Originally, it was supposed to be a more traditional sword fight set outside of the trailer out in the desert, uh, which could have been cool, you know, yeah. and, and the way that they, they describe it is you, you would see a, someone get sliced in the neck with a samurai sword. You see a, a shot of like a big spray of blood and then the camera pulls back and it's Daryl Hannah with blood spurting out of her neck. Pretty cool scene, right? right. But they were on set for the scene and they, they had all the effects prepped for this, ready to go. They had the prosthetic for Daryl Hannah's neck and everything. Then Tarantino shows up the next day and says, I had a dream last night and I want to change the whole sequence. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they had to rethink how they're doing this entire scene and which includes the plucking of the eye which is a whole nother effect but uh so they and they had like one day to figure this out which goes back i think and i they didn't say anything about this in the interview but i have to imagine that nicotero working for savini who was so good at thinking about coming up with new effects like just off the top of his head in the moment had to have really come in handy on this gosh Effects aside, I was just thinking about it um, from a choreography standpoint. Of like, well, we're going to get going into from that outside part. to in the trailer, yeah. like super confined space. Well, it helps when you got when you got people like Yoon Wo Ping, right, helping you out. It yeah. also helps since we're talking about fight scenes. Uh, another person that's very integral in in that scene and in the entire film, if we're being honest, is Zoe Bell. Oh yeah. So if you're familiar with with Tarantino's work, you probably already know who Zoe Bell is. Well, she's not usually seen on screen, at least, you know, you can't see her face most of the time on screen uh, as a stunt performer. Tarantino, impressed with her work on this film, did put her front and center for Death Proof, his half of of Grindhouse, of course. So Zoe Bell uh, was born in New Zealand. She is an avid athlete as a kid, uh, trained in competitive gymnastics, dance, high diving, scuba, track and field and by age 15 she had begun studying taekwondo so she is a she was born a badass is what it sounds like yeah. basically yeah. Uh, her her first major gig as a stunt woman was on the tv series hercules the legendary journeys and on xena warrior princess both of which filmed in new zealand by the fourth season of xena she was the stunt double for lucy lawless so Good after gig. Yeah, yeah. And so after this, she continued her career as a stunt double and sometimes actor in smaller films and TV shows before landing the job 
on Kill Bill. And on Kill Bill, she was originally hired to be Uma Thurman's crash and smash double. So, you know, uh, the bride's falling down the stairs or flying through a wall. Like, that's, that's Zoe. But the stunt team soon realized that she would make an ideal stunt double for Thurman. They're about the same height. You know, they're about a similar build. Uh, they both have light hair. And, and so they began to fight her, to, to train her to fight in the wushu style of Chinese martial arts so that she could do some more intricate stuff. And she would go on to be Thurman's stunt double for the entirety of this production. I thought I I liked where that sentence was going before, like where you were saying they begin to fight her, <laughs> and she just whipped their ass. You're, like, You're going to learn wushu right now. She and they just like But that's uh, how you learn. That's like somebody learning to swim by being just thrown into a lake. Right, exactly. <laughs> but I also think I think uh, by the way, Zena was probably part of the reason she got cast. Tarantino, if you watch, like he is a huge fan of Xena Warrior Princess. I found like multiple interviews with him talking about this show. And uh, in one interview, he talks about how he's just like, Xena's fantastic. It's, it's what I always had wished Wonder Woman and Charlie's Angels was. He's like, probably 15 years from now, I'll come back and watch Xena Warrior Princess and think this is kind of lame. But he said, you know, he talks about the, the backstory of Xena being, magnificent uh how xena was starts off as this overly evil person just uh an assassin and like killing people and uh but then she decides to turn her life around and and find peace but she's doing this by trying to redeem herself by saving other people and she can never really redeem herself and then there's this person Callisto, who's born from her killing everybody at first and comes back and wants revenge and is killing people on the path to revenge to kill xena and xena uh, has every right to die at the hands of Callisto, but uh, Callisto's also killing innocent people, and he's like, "This is perfect conflict." And it sounds really familiar. But anyway, <laughs> sure uh, Zeta got canceled, <laughs> and uh, Quentin Tarantino got the stone. Yeah, and and if you want to watch a really cool documentary about Zoe Bell, there's one that came out in 2004 around the time of Kill Bill called Double Dare. <laughs> and it's basically about it's about her and I think there's another stunt woman if I, I haven't seen it in a few years it's I on TV I think it's the woman that plays the the pastor's wife if I'm oh, not yeah. mistaken well it, it's on it's on Tubi TV right now as as of today that we're recording this I saw it but uh, it it follows Zoe Bell basically from her time working on Xena through her getting the job on Kill Bill so it's it's a it's it's a cool documentary a cool I don't know, man. I feel like stunt people don't get enough credit, and I, it's nice to see a movie that highlights their work. Same, because they're yeah. one, they're some of the few people who are literally putting their lives on the line for our entertainment. Mm. <laughs> you know, she is so, Mrs. Harmony in uh, Volume Two. The other lady, sorry, Jeannie I looked up Jeannie Epper. Yeah, she also did some stunts. It says as well. Yeah, like look up Jeannie Epper's. IMDb. It's impressive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, in 2004, Zoe Bell and Angela Merrill, which is Vivica A. Fox's stunt doll in the film, they got nominated at the Taurus World Stunt Awards in the categories Best Overall Stunt by a Woman and Best Fight for their work on the knife fight between the, the bride and Bernita Green. And then in 2005, she was again nominated the next year for Best Overall Stunt by a Woman, Best Fight, and Best High Work. And uh, she and Daryl Hannah's stunt double, Monica Staggs, won Best Overall Stunt and Best Fight for their fight in Bud's trailer 
from volume two. So while well, we're well, on- deser- well deserved because it's because it's uh, an that's, that's an awesome sequence. I've never it's- wanted to see two people uh, lock up more than by the time they finally get to Beatrix and L Driver. Like, yes, want to see the, when they're getting ready to go at each other with swords. Like, I am just because they're it. they're one of the few like of all of the other members of, of the Deadly Vipers. You can see that there's some sort of animosity between L Driver and the Bride based on the way L Driver acts in volume one when he, she comes to the hospital. You don't see that between Bud or Vernita Green or Orenishii. For them, that seems it's like it's more business. There's something about their relationship, even though you don't ever see them in the same scene until that, well, at least not both conscious, until that, <laughs> that trailer fight. Uh, but you can sense that there's something between them that it, this is more than just getting even. You know what I mean? Yeah. But kind of apparently, that- well, apparently, uh, Daryl Hannah and Uma Thurman also did not get along very Perfect. well on set. So <laughs> that oh. might, might have contributed to that a little bit. Well, well, I was going to say, it definitely alludes to like, Elle is like really obsessed with replacing Beatrix. Like she just right, yes. wants the wants that role. The yeah. other tall blonde and and Bill's entourage. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, just different little bits of dialogue, I guess, between her and Bill, and you know, things she says while she's unconscious and stuff like that it makes me think that there's some sort of romantic entanglement there. Like maybe she's I, jealous. I yeah, yeah, something like that. I don't know. Well, it's I like Bill know. always loved her or something. It feels that way. I mean, she definitely talks to Bill like, "Hey baby" and stuff like that. Like maybe mm-hmm. they've got a thing now, but maybe yeah. she feels like Bill's not letting it go. But Bill she's also like, takes her to Pi May and you know all of that stuff. So it's Well, like, Este- is- Esteban clearly says, "Well, he's he was crazy for blondes." So maybe it might just be that surface that that shallow if he just loves blondes, but I don't know. I mean, it's, also any, anybody's guess is as good as none of them healthy else. for Bill. <laughs> right. <laughs> so while we're on the subject of stunts, there is one incident that I feel like now, if you're talking about kill bill, you have to talk about, and if you're going to talk about the full story of the making of kill bill, uh, you, you kind of have to talk about this. You can't skip over it. So near the end of filming, in the sequence where the bride is driving to Bill in Mexico, Uma Thurman was injured in a car crash, uh, pretty seriously. Injured her back and injured her knees, injuries that are still plaguing her to this day. So uh, according to Thurman, she was uncomfortable driving the car. They had this little vintage Italian car uh, that she says that was just did not feel safe. Like the, the seat didn't even feel like it was bolted down correctly. And she had asked a stunt driver to do it, but Tarantino assured her that the car and the road were safe. Uh, Zoe Bell we, we should say, was not on set at this time. Zoe Bell's not a stunt driver anyway, but Zoe Bell does show, show some regret for not being there because she feels like a sense of, I need to protect the people that I'm doubling for. Uh, but uh, she wasn't there because she, she was recovering from an injury that she'd suffered a few months prior. So Thurman's driving down the road. She loses control of the car and she hits a tree and suffered a concussion, and her, her knees got banged up. And this footage was released to the New York Times a couple of years ago. Now, Tarantino was was apologetic about this, but it did create a strain on his and Thurman's relationship that would last for years. Uh, although they, they seem to be on good terms now, uh, Tarantino is actually the one who helped uh, Thurman find the footage 
of the crash to release to the New York Times because Harvey Weinstein had attempted to cover the whole thing up and it was in storage, but, but Tarantino tracked it down. And Thurman has, has said that she would be willing to work with Tarantino again. And, and as we mentioned before, she allowed, you know, her daughter was in, in, in his latest movie, but so they seem to be fine now, but there was some animosity for them between them for, for a while as a result of this. And it was more like reading uh, interviews with both of them. It, I mean, there are of course, both sides of the story. Her interview in the New York times makes it feel like it, it was a little more like he was just mad. Like he was mad that she wouldn't, she didn't want to do the stunt and annoyed. Whereas when he tells it, it's more like he just suggested it to her, but he still felt bad because she trusted him and he was, telling her it was safe and she trusted him and then it wasn't safe. And that the part of the reason that they, they had issues after that was that he had lost her trust. You know, she no longer trusted him as a director. Now uh, I I was just going to say, I mean, this is where you, like, if you read the New York times article, I almost sounded angry and I'm not angry, but I will say (laughs) this, be very careful all the time because like in the deadline interview that Quentin Tarantino did where he talks about the same thing, he makes it sounds very different. It sounds very different. And he points out that like none of the stuff that like makes it sound like he was angry were quotes from Uma Thurman. Right. It's all all written by the the author is saying Maureen Maureen Dowd, I believe, was the Maureen Dowd, um, right. That she had heard that this thing. And so that's what makes media very tricky sometimes is that uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, according to him, it was the situation that she she supposedly had been told by one of the drivers that it didn't seem right the car didn't seem right so she didn't want to do it he got in the car and he drove the path and it seemed like a pretty right. straight shot and then he came uh, to her, he they came to her up, and told her you're it's it's gonna be fine yeah and he said he was very nice about it i mean he says he was very nice about it like this is you know it's it's cool like this is an easy shot it's point a to point b straight shot no problem so she agreed to do it but then when they got back out to set some of the folks were talking about doing it in reverse, like sending it the opposite way. It was because of the lighting, because it was later in the day and then they needed. And he, and that's not a path he had driven. And, but he just assumed that it was very similar and it wouldn't be a big deal. And she did it. And there's a, like a four. And he said, you can't see it really until you're like in the car, like seeing it, it looks like the road forks off. And, and he's like, and there's a lot of sand there. It's like not something you really saw, but he, I mean, he's very open about like, no excuses. I should not have done this. She trusted yeah. me. And now that the whole scenario changed and she's in the situation that I didn't. Well, he's like, I should have driven it. I, I should have checked it in the other direction. Yeah. And he's like, and I didn't do that. I just assumed and she drove it and she got hurt. And I've always felt guilty for that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he calls part- it the biggest regret of his life. Yeah, not just because, of his career. He says, this is not the biggest regret of my career. This is the biggest regret of my life because I hurt somebody who trusted me. And, well, and I obviously, and it. I would say, in, and I'm glad that you, because I did the same thing, Gary, but I would say in a situation like this, it is important to read and to look into all aspects because I do think that the Maureen Dowd story skews things a little bit because of the way that she writes it. Uh, because like you said, some of the, the more incendiary things about Tarantino in it are not quotes from Uma and Uma has gone on record after the fact as saying that she is, you know, yes, she blames Tarantino, but not like it was a malicious thing. It was just a, it was a, it was broken trust between the two. Well, and, 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 you know, and then that's the thing is like, he's saying like, 
she should blame me. Like I should, I'm responsible for that. I made a mistake and, but it wasn't like malicious. It wasn't like angry, but then that, that same story like also tells, I mean, this is stuff where I don't want to go down a whole rabbit hole here by accident, but that's what we do. Yeah. But no, where people <laughs> love to cancel other people. And this got yes. like, brought up as a thing to cancel Quentin Tarantino. Like they try, like, as we're talking right now, there was a recent thing to like cancel Chris Pratt, for instance, like this was a, a trending topic recently on Twitter as we're recording this. And it, and for good reason, like on the tweets that they posted uh, stuff where he dropped the end bomb saying Muslims were scary and blah, blah, blah. And Chris Pratt's had his own issues before this now. And, you know, Chris Pratt and I would probably disagree with stuff politically, but then a week later it comes out and they've shown like, no, these tweets are fake. Like this is not stuff that came from Chris Pratt's account. And so it's like, but cancel Chris Pratt was trending (laughs) before all this. So it's like people like rush. So they're taking this article. Well, we have to, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Gary, but we have to also say that at the time that this was released, this was like right during the Harvey Weinstein. Well, that's the word I was going to go right at the the kind of, I would say, birth of the Me Too movement, Uh, because the article, the article itself was really or what it should have really been about was the fact that Harvey Weinstein sexually assaulted Uma Thurman around the time of Pulp Fiction's release. Well, and supposedly, and according it to... It got overshadowed by this crash footage. Well, what, what supposedly the story was is that, you know, the reason the crash footage was released, you know, she had been blocked from getting the footage, and Tarantino had said he had heard that she had, but had thought nothing about it until she came to him saying, I need this footage because I need to indict these people for what they've done. And... Tarantino is who helped her find the footage. Right. Yeah. Like he had his assistant, like digging through warehouses of footage, looking for 15 year old, a 15 year old reel of film. Because essentially she tried to get like an insurance claim, like to do all of this stuff because of the crash. And none of it happened because the Weinstein or Harvey uh, had covered it and they had destroyed the car apparently or something like that. And like all of this stuff. And so, Tarantino knew he was going to take a hit, but that was discussed with Uma beforehand. Beforehand, yeah. But by the time that article came out, uh, Harvey and the other guy, forget his name right now, had lawyered up and they had Lawrence to pull, Bender, I think. Yeah, that's he was, right. I think it was Lawrence Bender. Yeah. And they had to pull their names from the article. Like yeah. they could not mention them for like some kind of defamation lawsuit that they were going to file or something. And the lawyers like made them pull it. So the only name that was allowed to be mentioned was Tarantino. Tarantino's. Yeah. <laughs> and so he gets He's to represent up. everyone all of a sudden. Yeah. And so the weight falls on him. And I mean, not saying that, and by the way, hopefully you could see this is trying to be a nuanced discussion of this, but it's not saying Tarantino's innocent. He did make a mistake, but it wasn't like, that that article goes into like talking about stories she heard about, like where he was spit in her face and choked her and stuff. So like in the yeah. in the um, in the uh, deadline article with the interview with Tarantino, he has to go through and like walk through each claim and be like, right. And what Gary's referring to there is that in the scene where Bud spits the the dip spit onto Tar- onto Uma's face, Tarantino was the one off screen doing that. And in the scene where she's getting choked by the uh, the chain from Gogo Yubari's weapon, Tarantino is the one choking her. 
Now, uh, what in in that deadline interview? Because me and Gary obviously read the same things. He explains his reasoning behind that, and I actually agree with his reasoning on it. And his reasoning is that one on the spitting, like she could have, uh, it, it's going to be somebody. Like you can't just squirt it out of like a gun, a squirt gun. It's he said they tried it with it. like some kind of pump system. Yeah, and it just didn't it look didn't like look actual right. spit. And he said he so, couldn't trust Michael Madsen because he didn't know how the shot should look. And he's like, well, well, yeah, grab he's, a grip. he's like, as a director, I can basically art direct the spit was, was yeah. what he said. So he knows what he wants it to look like. And he knows that like he is taking personal responsibility for it. He's like, we can do it three times. And after the third one, if you're done, we're done, you know, but I know what it's going to look like. And I, instead of asking an actor to do it five or six times, I can take personal responsibility and do it two or three times. And so this is all, and, and, and of course he, all talked he got, about ahead of time. And he got Uma's. Yeah. He got her permission before doing that. Same with the choking uh, scene and his reasoning behind doing that was that like, you, you know, cause then when you see that scene, you see like veins bulging out on her face. Like she looks like she's truly choking because she is, uh, but he got permission from her to do that. And it was, again, it was like, if we'll do this, however many takes that you feel comfortable and then we'll not do it. Uh, the it same thing like would later happen on, like, um, don't, you know, we're right. not like holding you down, like choking you to death. Like, it's and just, this would happen again with Diane Kruger on *Inglorious Bastards* when she's getting choked in uh, by, I, I think, by Michael Fassbender's character, if I remember right. The hands you see on screen are actually Tarantino's, and it was again a thing where he was trying to take personal responsibility for, like, he didn't want to, ha- he didn't want to ask an actor to do that. Well, he even said that on like the spit thing with like, he's like, what am I going to do? Like grab some grip on the set and be like, we spit tobacco juice in Uma Thurman's face. He's like, right. it's going to be weird for a lot of reasons. Weird because it's probably not going to work right. Weird for that guy because he's going to be like, I'm not spitting in Uma Thurman's face. <laughs> weird for Uma because <laughs> she doesn't know him. <laughs> and uh, he's like, yeah. we have a relationship. This makes more sense than I'm the person. I mean, it's weird. Yeah, it's weird when you think about it and watch the movie, knowing that that's, Quentin Tarantino spitting on her face, but is that less weird than if it was just some rando like extra or something, you know, like what, you know, what's the solution to that? It's uh, other than not having that scene, which is plus, you know, having, you know, it coming from the director for a shot. um, It's a lot less than, you know, some executive, some producer going, Hey, we need to bury this. We need to bury this shit. Right, exactly. Well, here's and, the other part that that that's really trying to get brought up here, and you mentioned it, Justin, is that also Harvey Weinstein is Harvey Weinstein. He's like one of the most notoriously awful fuckheads we've ever seen in the world of Hollywood cinema. Like he's he's just a terrible guy. And also he had Quentin worked together a very long time for decades. Decades. And there's that side of it that like this article was originally produced. All of this was to help Uma make her case because she's also telling her story about what Harvey Weinstein did to her, which I imagine, I don't know this for a fact. I don't th- I couldn't find anything that ex- explicitly said this, but going back to that original discussion around Pulp Fiction, where she was fed up with Hollywood and she was just not happy um, when I was talking about this. Uh, I, I feel like that's probably part of it. Like, cause she yeah. says that Harvey Weinstein, like, forced himself on her and, and that kind of thing. In fact, I mean, in that article, he's Quentin, she had told Quentin Tarantino this, and this is another thing, by the way, that uh, we all have to be aware of. And uh, Quentin Tarantino admits to is that the term "believe all women" 
No, it doesn't mean that Bill's uh, truth serum shot that he shot into her leg is produced by vagina juice and vaginas give you the power of all knowing truth and you'll never tell a lie. But it does mean that you should you should take accusations seriously. And Quentin Tarantino, it's become like this whole political thing. And so that's what irritates me. That's why I said that. It's like become like, oh, women can still lie. Yeah, sure. But but take the accusation seriously. seriously. And so Uma had told Quentin this same thing. And Quentin went to, so supposedly he was dating, sorry to go down, like I said, the rabbit. Mira Sorvino. Mira Sorvino. And she had told him something similar and he had stopped. Harvey had stopped around the time that Quentin and Mira Sorvino were dating. So Quentin was like, he's got a reputation. He flirts a lot. Like he's overly flirty, yada, yada, yada. But just, you know, he brushed it off. And then, there was the situation of Uma who told him and he made Harvey apologize to Uma, but even in his words, not realizing the extent of the accusation, he's, I think he described it as like a madman, like sixties, like you flirt with your secretary too much where it's a little uncomfortable. Like it's, you right. know, he didn't, he, he didn't kinda, realize that it was a, a, a rape or attempted rape. Yeah, exactly. Like people brush these things off. They treat they they boo boo it like it's uh just a fucking you know which I like, which Tarantino has also shown regret for. Sure, I mean reviews. this all goes into their relationship, you know, falling apart. I'm sure. Like it, it just, yeah. but you know, he made Harvey go and apologize to Uma. That was the only way this movie was going to go forward, and he did. Supposedly, Harvey went and apologized directly to Uma, and according to Tarantino, Uma confirmed that he did go to her and apologize and so the movie proceeded because i I guess you know she didn't want to work with him or at least refused and tarantino convinced it to go forward by him apologizing anyway all that to say like there was a lot happening at this that article was to help in the process of uma getting her story out about what harvey weinstein had done to her like how much it ended up being was a it ended up being seen as a uh, as as sort of a let's cancel Tarantino. Yeah, because he gets to be the only name mentioned, and then he gets buried, and now he's just like some gigantic asshole, which I'm sure he's probably a prick sometimes. But <laughs> I'm just saying. all directors are honestly, except for probably Spielberg. He seems really nice. You know, I hope I hope he hasn't raped anyone or anything. I'm just saying. I, I, I hope so most. Far. I hope that about most people. Yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> i'm just saying a lot of the shit out there about quentin tarantino is know, like et's eyes look real dead i feel like <laughs> i feel like something happened spielberg there, fucked that puppet he did <laughs> he did i know he did and you can quote me on that <laughs> it's on tape it's on so tape. anyway i'm uh, sorry so, i hope well, i didn't go too far down that rabbit no, hole no I just not feel- at all not at all i think this is something that needs needs if you're talking about this movie this is an integral part of the discussion i think and i but i'm curious you guys like in the wake of all of that do you think that that tarnishes the legacy of the film I, do you, I'll, do you I'll think be- it skews how i mean it definitely skews how some people view the film i i think um with because Kat watched both of these back to back with me, but with everything surrounding Harvey Weinstein, um, the tragic turn of circumstances of Gordon Liu's life, which we discussed on the 36, uh, 36 chambers episode. And then, you know, how David Carradine met his end. 
I felt I think this is the first time as far as we know, Weinstein and Tarantino weren't there for that. (laughs) Well, that hasn't been proven, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) But again, you know, looking at these things and I mean, I mean, it should be fairly obvious to the audience that Gary and Justin do more research, like real research than I do. Try to approach these at surface level just to, you know, just to offer that fresh perspective. Well, and Todd, to be fair, the reason I, I even know so much about it or wanted to research it is because searching this movie in any way or the relationship between Tarantino and Uma, this is the first shit that pops first up. First thing now. that comes oh, up. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but again, looking at, um, you know, when these names pop up in the credits, now having been a part of this show and hearing this research and then, you know, going and reading things on my own, when I see these names pop up in the credits, even though this film is 17 years old, 15, 17 years old, somewhere around in there. Um, it, I mean, it, it, I don't say, I wouldn't say it taints it cause I still enjoy the movie, but it kind of puts some things in a different light. Well, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the thing with, for me is I, I, I think this is coming from kind of the same direction as you're coming from Todd. Mm-hmm. When you're watching it and you're watching a movie about a woman who is being brutalized, who's being abused, right? Uh, and you know that Uma was in a way abused on the set, whether it was intentional or or not, or however you see the however you might view the scenes where she's getting spit on and choked, which I see as being essentially consensual. Based on what I've heard. I mean, obviously I was. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like it. So, but it is kind of weird to view a movie about a woman who is, is going through hell, knowing what Uma Thurman went through on the set of the film. Yeah. Uh, So we, uh, the thing is we've discussed a couple movies during the series, specifically thriller and, and lady snowblood where the explicit abuse of women is sort of the catalyst for their revenge. Uh, it's, it is in, and this is a, a sort of an inherent problem in the rape revenge subgenre is that it's that trauma that makes them powerful as opposed to them being powerful beings before that trauma. Uh, another good example, uh, another example of that would be a day of the woman or I spit on your grave mm-hmm. where she almost gains her power after her abuse. You know, I, I obviously women don't have to earn their power by men being shitty to them. They're, they're perfectly powerful on their own. Right. It's, it's weird. I wasn't even going to go there, but that you're bringing it up. I mean, that was the thought I had too, when I was even researching the stuff about how uh, Tarantino was trying to convince Uma that, you know, like, exploitation movies they're really great at this and you know like i get genre movies i mean you you can talk all day about like ripley or something like that but uh it's like in a he's he's talking about specifically revenge movies and i'm like okay yeah i don't know i i had this argument with myself of like thriller you know like i'm like yeah she's a badass at the end after she gets fucked over for her whole life you know right it makes me think of uh, if you've seen game of thrones of um uh, sansa because Sansa, there's there's a moment in Game of Thrones because she gets sexually assaulted by by Ram, Ramsey. Is that his name? I, I haven't watched Game of Thrones in a while. That's little it. finger, and she actually says that like <laughs> I I would still be that little bird 
if it had not been for them. So she's giving the power to the, those men for creating the woman that she is today, which is, I think the argument well, is she giving the power been, or is she giving the credit? Well, like, well either like way, in, terms, in terms of game of Thrones, it's like, Hey, either way, it sounds bad to me, but either I, way, it doesn't make it better. Yeah, and I was fighting yeah. this out in my mind. I was fighting this out in my mind because I think what the argument would be would be like, well, she was just already conditioned to think she's a little flower or whatever, you know, that she's delicate, you know, that 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 Beatrix kiddo is well, no, Beatrix kiddo, nothing. But I mean, I will say that for her. Beatrix kiddo was already a badass, I guess. Before she was, yes, yeah, and so but, well, <laughs> that's the thing though. That so these female revenge movies go going kind of in that same direction. These female revenge movies are almost always driven by by sexual assault. Now, Kill Bill is not necessarily that that movie. There is that short rape revenge plot that takes place in the hospital, yeah. uh, and that she dispatches those guys very quickly. Mm. <laughs> and, and but the overall arc of the film is still about a woman who has had her body and herself taken away from her by bill. Yeah. So even though it's not explicitly like a rape revenge movie, it is still about a woman who is reclaiming. Yes. She was powerful before, but she's had that taken away. And the movie, the arc of the movie point, because it's like, no Beatrix was badass. Then the men still took it away from her. They still took it away. And then the movie is about her reclaiming those aspects of herself. It's a story about someone who has been made to feel powerless working to take her power back from these people specifically from bill who have robbed her of that do you think i mean just i just want to put this question out there do you think she would have gone to such great length i mean and we're going to theorize about the motivations of fictional character here so (laughs) hang on what we do yeah yeah um (laughs) but do you think she would have made that choice had they had she not been pregnant. I think she still would have felt um, betrayed. Yes, uh, because well, betrayed, Bill, again, Bill like, is clearly someone that she cared about. Yeah. Uh, although, did her losing her child? And that's that's where I think bit? the tr- I, that's where I think the real. Well, the well, the tricky is. part, Todd, is is like I, I, theorizing that. about the motivations of a fictional character. So. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, if you want to go down this path, it sounds. I mean, we're clearly, pretty clearly shown she would not even be in this scenario were it not that she were pregnant. Like she, she was off on a mission. It wasn't until yeah. she discovered she was pregnant that she yeah. decided to she move had a change of her heart. own. Yeah, right. so she would have just been an assassin. It sounds like. Like yeah, maybe yeah. nothing would have changed. Nothing. Yeah. They, they, no, no reason for Bill to hunt her down because she wouldn't have run. Right. Yeah, that's true. No. Yeah. So I wanted to say, if I could, we, you know, we, you asked the question about does it take the the picture of the movie for you and or for me or whatever. Uh, the thing is, for me, is I don't think that it does, except that I know that it happened. So I'm aware yeah. that it's a thing. I'm kind that, of in your same boat. And, and, and the reason is, is not to take any way, anything away from the scenario, but were it a story that had I researched it and found that Quentin Tarantino is just a huge dickhole and he fucking drove her into a tree, that would be one thing. But given the circumstances, people, people don't like this in this day and age, and maybe this is not the cool way to approach this, but we are all fallible, fallible individuals. 
and like we all fuck up. And I think that it's it's nice that the story is out there and it should be free to be out there. And clearly it sounds like QT is very distraught himself over the scenario. And there are things he wishes he could do differently. And, you know, things probably even Uma would have done differently. She would have just been like, fuck off. I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. Hopefully she feels empowered to do that. But this, this does shine a light on that scenario. And, uh, Movies are designed, though, to, like, give us a, a place where things are cut and dry, like evil, like good guys and bad guys, and you cut somebody's head off. I mean, I'm sure we'd all love for Uma to just be able to go into Harvey Weinstein's jail cell and just cut his head off. But Or his dick. Or his dick off with a katana. Like, or we'd both, all accept that. Both, and then replace them. Like The, reason, the reason you have <laughs> these stories, though, are that Uma has to go through a process that we all, you know, that just is the way that the real world works. She's tried to expose some of the injustices she experienced. And our job is to take those very seriously and to know that they exist and accept, accept that those things happen and try to be better from here. And uh, so it's like, it's like faulting all of Hollywood because of what the, what Harvey Weinstein did. It's like, I'm sure, I'm sure that there are some people out there that knew more than they let on and they, or, even in like QT's case should have taken it more seriously, but it sounds like, and all you can ask for is that you know, now like you, you, you have to feel regret. You have to feel remorse and you have to, I don't know. I, I don't want to sound like I'm just like giving it a pass by any means. I don't think you do. I, I think you're, you're acknowledging it. Yeah. It's just like, you know, that people we're learning, we're learning now. We've gotten right. better as society. We're growing and there are awful people like what Harvey Weinstein did. And I just don't think a lot of people got exactly what this guy was doing. And maybe yeah. it was money. Maybe it was power. Maybe it was whatever clouds that judgment or that ability for you to understand the depth of which he was going. But at this point, it's like, he's, he's suffering the consequences of it. Thank God. And that's over and you just i mean you know that you just have to understand this was a place in time and hopefully you can take a movie like kill bill and say like this is the cathartic release of like what should happen to some asshole like harvey weinstein you know like yeah a prick like bill like this is what movies are supposed to do <laughs> bill bill's more um more sympathetic Actually, Bill is so much more sympathetic than Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly much, enough. <laughs> much more. Of course, if, if you're talking about a Quentin Tarantino movie, you cannot discuss it without discussing its music. And Kill Bill has, in my opinion, the best soundtrack of any of Tarantino's films. It is, uh, like his previous films, Kill Bill has a very diverse soundtrack. Uh, it's got Johnny Cash. It's got the five, six, seven, eights who I love. That's the the Japanese all girl group who plays in the House of Blue Leaves. That that's a real woo-hoo, band, and they're uh, yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're so good. Um, volume one famously uses some of the instrumental work of Japanese guitarist Tomoyasu Hotei, who does that that badass scene with with Orin's uh, entourage walking. You know, it's been used in a billion commercials since then. That guy's a badass. Go look up his albums. They're it's including the album uh, where where that particular song is on. It's really fun stuff. Uh, you've got Ennio Morricone's score from Death Rides a Horse, which we talked about in our very first week of this series. 
Uh, Bernard Herman's theme from Twisted Nerve, which is the song that L Driver whistles. Uh, you've got Flower of Carnage from Lady Snowblood, who we we also discussed. Uh, there's the Green Hornet theme song, uh, an excerpt from Quincy Jones's theme for the TV series Ironside. Uh, that's the song that's you the, the like siren that's used every time one of the bride's uh, nemeses are spotted. Which, by the way, Ironside is a TV show that uh, Bruce Lee appeared on in four episodes, which I think we mentioned that back in our Game of Death episode. And then the, the song at the end of Volume Two of Kill Bill Volume Two is a rock and roll version of a traditional Mexican song called Malagueña Salarosa. Uh, but this version is performed by Chingon, who is Robert Rodriguez's band. And I love, love his version of that song. I think it's so much fun. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, most of the time I just, uh, I hang around to, you know, when the credits start to roll, I end up looking through uh, the cast, obviously, and, you know, some of the writers and uh, things of that sort. This one, I was like, I want to check out the song list. It's uh, my favorite Tarantino really soundtrack, cool. and, and yeah. all of his soundtracks are great. Yeah. Although, af- I will say, after Kill Bill, most of his soundtracks are primarily score, mm-hmm. uh, either reused score from other films. With, I mean, with other, I mean, there are obviously songs peppered in there, like you've got um, Putting Out the Fire with by David Bowie, or whatever the name of that song is, the song from Cat People that's used in Inglorious Bastards. You've got the, yeah. the Tupac James Brown mashup in Django, which is really rad. Hateful Eight is the only one that has like an original score by Ennio Morricone, which is incredible as well. But those movies after Kill Bill primarily reused movie scores, except until Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is all 60s shit and is also really good but there's something about the diversity of the kill bill soundtrack that is the one i revisit the most because even the even like the uh the the instrumental tracks and everything are so good i mean you've got that one that, that we talked about the um the, uh, the hoti track from the house of blue leaves scene but every every track in this like even the instrumental stuff and everything is just so good my, my favorite is probably the Ennio Morricone song that plays when she, when, when the bride uh, is buried in the, in the coffin, you know, that, that like triumphant song that starts playing, like as she starts yeah. punching it and hitting it. Yeah. It is so good. Works, fact, works really well for the moment in the film too. Yeah. That song awesome. was played at our wedding. That was part of our wedding playlist. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, it, I don't know. This soundtrack is just iconic. Yeah, it's it's really. Good. I mean, all of his soundtracks are, but this one in particular, even more than Pulp Fiction, like this is the one I revisit. So, as you probably know, well, hell, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Kill Bill was written and conceived as a single film, uh, but all in all during filming, it was thought of as a single film. It wasn't until editing began that the idea to split the film came into really was like a definite thing, and it was Harvey Weinstein. Who, who came up with the idea. Harvey Weinstein's a guy who's known for pressuring filmmakers to shortening their films. He suggested the idea to Quentin Tarantino, and Tarantino was all for it because he knew that the film, as he had conceived it, would have easily come in at four hours plus. And he also knew that he, he couldn't release a four-hour movie, like not even with all the goodwill that he had with, with the Weinsteins and with Miramax. He's like, I could do it at two hours and 50 minutes, maybe three hours and 10 minutes. But he's like, I can't release a four-hour movie. And so he would have to cut some scenes, scenes like the, the Michael Park stuff in Mexico. Uh, you, he would cut out or, or the Pai Mei stuff or, or you know, cut down the Pai Mei stuff at least or Bud at the strip club. Completely unnecessary. 
to the plot of the film or the or the anime sequence would have to get either cut out or cut down uh which i i guess if we're talking about the anime sequence we should at least point out that this was it was created by production ig is the name of the, the animation company those are the guys mm-hmm. who had previously been responsible for Ghost in the Shell and Vampire Hunter D, which Tarantino was a big fan of. Well, but, can I ask, was there a specific thought as to why, as to why have that and that sequence alone uh, be animated? Lady Snowblood, my dude. There's that sequence in Lady Snowblood where it's all comic book panels. There's also a Bollywood. Why movie don't that's I been remember created. that? <laughs> I don't know. It's a pretty memorable. It's a it's a backstory, a part of a, the backstory in Lady Snowblood. There's a whole sequence that's shown in in comic book panels, and there's also a Bollywood movie that goes into a an animated sequence that's a similar style to this. That's also been credited as inspiration on it. But I, I would say that the Lady Snowblood thing is the biggest inspiration on that sequence. In discussing this, the idea of having to cut this movie up, Tarantino said, he said, I'm talking about the scenes that are some of the best scenes in the movie, but in this hurtling pace where you're trying to tell only one story, that would have been the stuff that would have to go. But to me, that's kind of what the movie was. are these little detours and these little grace notes. And I I, I fully agree with that. Like that's what makes Kill Bill as special as it is. It's not just the revenge stuff. It's these little... These little uh, these little short films, these little plays that you get like in the strip club, like you don't have to have that scene, but God damn it, I love watching Larry Bishop in that scene, the guy who owns the strip club, and his great performance. I would and Sid Haig, who has like three lines, but is you know like, but you don't want to see those. I would hate to see those on the cutting room floor. It's yeah. a great little story all on its own, and it's it's part of it's and this movie is filled with tangents. It's well, filled what, with these what little is, side stories. Yeah, and it also adds some depth to these otherwise like unknown characters that you only know in flashbacks and that right. sort of thing. It, and to Michael Madsen, who, by the way, I feel like still has never got his just due. And I don't know if he's a good actor or not. I can't ever tell because in like <laughs> this movie, I fucking love him. And he's been Sin City. But then like Sin Sin City, I'm like, Jesus Christ, how did this guy ever become an actor? But (laughs) it's like, but there's something I want to love about him. And so like in this movie, he's cool. And it and in like Reservoir Dogs, like you're like, he's just cool. This guy's so cool. Even though he's the shittiest person in Reservoir Dogs. Right. Exactly. Oh yeah, yeah. You and I mean. And sometimes, you know, you think about some of those cut scenes. I mean, we've all seen, you know, deleted scenes and special feature sections on, you know, discs and whatnot. But um, you hate to see something like this uh, get chopped out and hung I mean, in a closet. I, I would totally understand why any of these scenes would be cut from a single film because it would totally just stop the film in its tracks. Yeah. You know, but. I don't want to, I, I love all of these scenes. I love the Michael Parks in Mexico stuff. I love the animated sequence. I, I love all of this stuff. And I, I, I would be sad if I didn't have them when I watched this movie, you know, they're, they're part of what makes me love this movie so much. In July, 2003, the announcement was made that Kill Bill would be released as two films with volume one released on the film's originally announced date of October 10th, 2003. The film came in at number one at the box office uh, raking in $22 million its opening weekend. And then Volume 2 came out in theaters about six months later, April 13, 2004. It was also 
a major commercial success, and both films received incredibly positive reviews. Uh, it's the mo- it was to date the most successful film of Tarantino's career, at least commercially. Uh, Gary, but I, I do have to ask you: in your in your research, have you found any internet armchair critics who maybe have an unkind word to say about Quentin Tarantino or this film? Justin, you, you'll be interested to find out that I could not find a one-star review on anything. Just kidding. No? <laughs> I have a hard time believing that. No, there are plenty of one-star he reviews. Didn't find, he didn't find a one-star review. He found many one-star <laughs> There were plenty of people that were not fans of this film. And, uh, and, and, and to make it easier on myself, I, I have... Uh, several short ones and then a nice little long one that uh, really emphasizes the fact that somebody needs a nap. All right. This is from, I don't even know. I didn't catch their name. doesn't matter. Warning before you buy is the title of the review. Uma is gorgeous. The action is good, but 35% of this movie is in Japanese. 20% of, 20% of the movie is in anime. Very disappointed. Bad direction. This could not have been condensed into 45 minutes of a good film, even with both parts, and I will not be purchasing the sequel. With over 300 DVDs in my collection, this one was bad enough for me to write my first review. (laughs) Wow, not a fan. (laughs) Not a fan. And so he only watched volume one, I guess. I guess. And I did mix in volume one and two reviews here. Anthony Newton says, uh, totally fails, even as a comedic spoof. This movie's supposed to be a farce, right? A spoof on kung fu movies, I'm guessing. But it's a miserable failure at that. I couldn't believe people raved over these movies. Then again, these people believe wrestling and aliens are real. This movie wasted 15 minutes of my life. <laughs> 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I gave it a few minutes after the opening knife fight in the kitchen, thinking that this scene is so stupid. The acting is amateurish. Excessive foul language is a sure sign of a poor script. It's got to be a Kentucky Fried movie type. Wrong. This is one of, no, this is the worst movie that has ever been made. Hell, Plan 9 and Killer Tomatoes were supposed to be bad. What a total piece of unrecyclable trash. This is no redeeming comment I could make. The special or lack of effects and sound effects are ridiculously high schoolish. That's what that person said. And uh, (laughs) if I could, let me just read this one last one, if you don't mind. I don't even know this word this person used, so I feel like it'll be very intelligent. Uh, it says certainly bilious, B-I-L-I-O-U-S. Is that bil- bilious? I'll read this in a nice professional accent like it should be. Oh boy, how does one start? Quitting me old mate. What a crock of, well, you know. After the first KB, I was expecting something special. Yes, you indeed did tell the story behind the bride's search for revenge, but in honesty, at the end of the day, why did you bother? Oh, silly me. Money. That's why. Mr. T, I have always had a soft spot for you. Your awful tongue-in-cheek cameos, your shocking raw filmmaking, your sheer enthusiasm for the medium of film, but your use of language. For fuck's sake, what are you thinking, man? This is first year film student stuff. I watched this last night with my partner. We were hard pushed to stay awake. Neither of us could believe just how slow this film was. The story could have been told in less than 15 minutes. What gets my goat though, 
is that you took 15 minutes worth of story and blew it all out of proportion and then sold it to us poor slobs as a fitting sequel to Kill Bill Volume 1. Man, I have lost a lot of respect for you. Oh, and before you other losers on here give me a hard time about the art or that action isn't everything, get a fucking grip. This film didn't have any art and boggle action. It had no substance. It did not grab you and make you want to stay in your seat. We only stayed to the end because we paid to see it. QT, if you ever read this, you should be ashamed of yourself. I want my money and the time you took from me returned. To anyone reading this review, if this ever gets posted, beware. There are going to be a serious number of disappointed people out there, and you may be one of them. QT said this would be different. What he did not say was just how different from good that would be. Wow. This is Quentin Tarantino's worst film. <laughs> I, I like that that second half of that review was directed at us, essentially. <laughs> right. That is um, yeah. the best review you've ever read during this segment of this show. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, not just your performance, Gary, but the review itself, the content. Oh, my God. I think he threatened Quentin Tarantino's life. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, now, of course, I, I, I gleaned that, that, that all of us uh, seem to enjoy this film. I love this movie. It is one of my most revisited. I like all films. volumes of Kill Bill so far. <laughs> all of them. So, uh, <laughs> and we can and have already and probably will more talk about the action of the film. And we can talk about how I think incredibly fleshed out even the smallest of characters are, even though they're on paper kind of one dimensional i think because of these little scenes and stuff that we talked about you kind of get to know enough of them to to really be invested in them and we can talk about that we can talk about all the other things that we that, that i love about this movie but first we, we've spent this entire series discussing the films that tarantino used as an inspiration for kill bill and even in doing that, even in the last six weeks, we've only scratched the surface in terms of Tarantino's influences. But one thing is very clear to anyone who sees, to, who sees any Tarantino film is that the dude loves movies. Oh, and yeah. Kill Bill is, I, I think, more than anything else that he's directed, a love letter to cinema. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, Volume 1 is, the first half of Kill Bill, is a, a love letter to specifically martial arts cinema that that first half is a martial arts movie basically and there there's some uh italian giallo stuff in there there's some exploitation stuff in there but it's essentially a martial arts movie the second is a love letter to uh spaghetti westerns among other genres and and the film as itself contains references to dozens of films and and other genres that well, i saw loves. i saw an interview with him not to cut you off but i, I saw an interview with him where he, he basically even kind of says like each kill in kill bill like each person she goes after he almost even viewed as here's a new opportunity to present a new genre like, yeah, like to, to, to try to attack this as a new genre yeah. i could totally see that yeah because you look at like michael madsen and that's clearly like i mean there's a lot of western elements in there oh, or yeah, something like for that sure. you know but then yeah oh renee she is like lady snowblood, lady snowblood. yeah and the, the movie honestly should not work 
you know, in a lot of other directors' hands, it, it would not work. And it's it's a movie who its tone veers wildly from one scene to the next. Uh, think of the moment in, in volume one where the bride awakens from her coma to find out that she's no longer pregnant. Like the, the emotion, the performance from Uma Thurman there, it's, it's heartbreaking. Like yeah. it, she is, she wails like in just absolute heartbreak. It's not cartoonish at all. It's not over the top. It's, it's real. Like it feels real. Yeah. Uh, but then the very next scene, has her biting a dude's face off and then driving off in the pussy wagon. You know, like how, like how many movies could pull that off? Like that, yeah. that, that, and how many that, filmmakers? Yeah. And, and then in between those moments, it goes on a whole side track where it, it spends 10 minutes uh, showing an anime about a side character's backstory. Yeah. And somehow it not only works, but that the anime sequence seems like it's not even a big deal. Like that when Tarantino just all of a sudden threw an animated sequence into his movie, like it just feels like it's a part of the fabric of this movie. And, and I think that's just simply and the way that the, the movie can go from one genre and one feel one tone to the next all boils down to the fact that Tarantino just knows what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> like he just knows how to juggle these things in a way that a lot of filmmakers simply can't do. Yeah. I mean, even just, even just from scripting, uh, it's clearly he's, he's in a class all his own. It just irritates the shit out of me when I see people. I mean, we, we've dealt with this, Justin, you know, we've dealt with this, but uh, the people that just like say that, like he has no original bone in his body and, you know, like I'm not, trying to be here to tell you like for anybody who thinks this, that I want to be like best buddies with Quentin Tarantino. I'm not sure that he and I would have fun together. Like he just seems like a weird dude, but, uh, but he's the it, Kirk to your Picard. Is that yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's uh, our one Star Trek <laughs> reference. <laughs> uh, we still have one wrestling reference that it will no, be allowed. Gary's made Gary's one. made at least two. No, I have not. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you absolutely have. I have not. You said uh, there's nobody you wanted to see lock up more. And I was like, that's that's a wrestling reference. Well, that's that's, a wrestling reference. That could be MMA. Uh, Oh, come on. I was not counting that, but I'll give you this, that uh, one thing he does, even in that scene, is one of the great things he's good at is that Professor Wesson can give you when at its best is that you understand the motivations of both characters. By the time they step in the ring together, you are ready to see these two battle because both have so much behind them coming into this fight that you want them. You you just need to see it happen. Who is going to win this? I can't understand. I can't even fathom what happens when one person wins. And uh, you're right. Well, there's your wrestling reference. So we're done with that. (laughs) We're done with that. What I was going to say though, originally is that I hate the people that I don't hate the people. I hate the idea that uh hate the Tar- sinner, not the sin. Wait, <laughs> right. that's not right. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> I love that. Uh, all of all, all of our uh Southern Baptist or Christian people are evang- evangelical. Hate the sin, not the sinner. That's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I hate the people that say that like they don't. He doesn't have like an original bone in his body, or he's just like blah blah blah. I'm like watching this movie, and I'm thinking to myself. No, dude, we just did six degrees of Kill Bill. I just watched it. I could see the references, right? Like, I get it. I get where they are. But they're just references. Like, they're just, yeah. like, 
taking little bits and pieces of things you loved. And I can imagine, I, I mean, that's art. That's He's still really- crafting something that is wholly original out of yeah. those pieces. Everybody takes something from something. I mean, there's, there's the whole idea that like with music, there's no new song under the sun or something. But like, it's, it's just, I mean, he's just taking the pieces he loves. He still made a story. He's still told a story that is different than anybody else yes yes he did do the one versus 100 yes he did put her in the game of death jumpsuit yes he did you know i don't know he used people that he cared about from previous movies but if anything he used his position to bring attention to those films that could have been lost in time that could have been niche movies that now with his platform he's made iconic i mean i you know, I'm, I'm not saying those movies weren't already great. I'm saying that because of the way the world works, those movies, those movies were probably not iconic because before he referenced them in his, he's shown a spotlight on them. Yeah. And so yeah. now because of those, you know, more, I mean, yeah, there were guys like Rizzo who knew 36 chamber of Shaolin beforehand. Now so many, even, even more people know 36 chamber of Shaolin more yeah. people know about lady Snowblood. You know, like, it's just, it's all part of it. Like, it's part of the process. It keeps those things alive, if anything. And and Tarantino's still creating a a very unique viewing experience. I mean, if this were one movie, it would have its biggest action sequence just under halfway through (laughs) the the movie. And then it ends up being a essentially a four-hour revenge film that hurdles full head, like full speed ahead, you know, hardly ever slowing down. Yeah. Uh, even with, even with those abrupt shifts in tone. That's, that's and then it really ends true. with what is, and then it ends with what is essentially a 40 minute philosophical discussion between two characters. I was about to say, I mean, it's not like <laughs> the battle between Bill and Beatrix is like the most epic thing ever. I mean, it's pretty quick. It's, it's rooted in emotion, though. It's rooted in mm. their their relationship is the thing. And, and that's the thing. The second film in this is considered generally to be the more, quote unquote, like Tarantino-esque of the two. So because it is more based in this character-driven dialogue, whereas the first film is, is essentially a, a, a mostly action. But that first film is really the only bona fide action movie that Tarantino has made. I mean, he afterwards he would like I said before that he had not really done any action scenes before this. After this, he's there's a couple. I mean, Death Proof has the car chase sequences, and Django's got a couple of action sequences in it towards the end. But even those movies were more rooted in in the traditional like Tarantino esque dialogue and things like that. I mean, oh, yeah. Death Proof for all of its the the love of its stunts. I mean, there's a it's a lot of people just talking in that movie, uh, well, but let me but volume this. one is an, as an action movie. Well, yeah. And, but one of the cool parts about volume two, as we watch these and, and my wife and I watch them both together and listen, you know, you, there are those of us, people probably on our level, people who are nerds, bearded white boy nerds like us or whatever that are going to think this way. But when my wife and I watch these, we watch both back to back. And it's the first time I've ever watched them both back to back. But by the time we got to the second one, one of the most impactful moments, I swear to God, for her, I think, was I, I love, 
now I've gotten to this point where I love watching her watch movies just to see how she's going to react. She's so different than me. She just has other shit on her mind. She doesn't think about the nerdy shit that I think of. Like she doesn't care. And I've same, come to same accept thing, that. Same thing in the Davis household. Yeah. I'm just saying, I mean, it's just at a certain point you can appreciate that. You're like, this is just a different person than me. And so it's nice when you intersect the Superman speech from Bill in this movie, this time, like when he was done, like this is Superman's critique on humanity and like going through it. She's just like, Oh my God, that's really interesting. And like, she it just like hit her all of a sudden. I'm like, this isn't even the first time you've seen this fucking movie. <laughs> this is like, this is why did that just hit you now? And I don't know if it's like, I've made her nerdier. And now that's like more of a reference for her because she was never like involved in like comic book, comic book movies, sci-fi, anything before. Like now that means something to her, but like that got her this time. I yeah. think that's cool. And it's awesome, you man. could yeah, you, you could be a dick about it. You could be like, fucking duh, you know, but <laughs> I, 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 I ask you to not be. I'll, I'll go ahead and say saying, fuck, saying fucking duh to your wife is never a good idea. Don't do that. <laughs> no. Don't do that. Do not do not do that. No. <laughs> I just I just prompt you to not be a dick. Just understand that not everybody's thinking about the same shit you are all the time. Yeah. And so when you're hearing this weird story about Superman, uh, from the eyes of Bill, it's kind of cool. Take it as a win that like, yeah. oh, wow, somebody found this intriguing. This piece <laughs> of dialogue. This was this was the point that they're like, oh, holy shit. Like, that's great. Yeah, and, that's awesome. Well, in terms cool. of in terms of, uh, you know, his quote unquote ripoffs or, you know, uh, heavy homages to all these other different films and people, for whatever reason, want to invalidate that. I, I look at it as a collage. Like he's taking these parts that he loves and putting them around this different, you know, actor or story or image and whatever, and, and creating something new. So, I mean, that's collage, like, yeah. you know, and, you know, but collage in film kind of. Well, so, in homage, I mean, it's, it's, it's like you're, you're paying respects to those things. It's yeah, not, it's yeah. not like he took, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's not like he took the eye patch for L driver. And I mean, a very, I mean, you could, you could almost picture L driver being uh what's her face from thriller. Like you could almost Frigga Frigga. You can almost see it. Like it just, sure. uh, you know, except you'd hope she wasn't such a bitch, but, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but other than that, like, I mean, I mean, it's just like, those are little, nods they're well well it, it was um i think picasso that said like good artists copy great artists steal and what he what he's meaning by that and and is that every artist who's creating something is somehow influenced by those who came before yeah absolutely you know and 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 it's it's all building on what has become before so i don't i don't put much stake in this idea that tarantino is unoriginal because he's referencing movies that have come before the movies that came before they were referencing shit too you love you love akira kurosawa considered one of the greatest filmmakers who has ever lived he blatantly ripped off john ford's westerns and would tell you that 
So yeah. if you yeah. people who are saying that about Tarantino just don't want to like Tarantino because it's popular. Well, and that's and that's the thing too is like it would even be one thing if somebody was like if he was like fucking throwing the Lucy Lou versus Beatrix Kiddo fight in there and pretending like he'd never seen Lady Snowblood. Right. <laughs> he's like yeah. No, man. yeah it's not like he's not no. vocal about yeah, his inspiration yeah. he's, he's, i love he's, lady snowblood that's what i'm yeah. doing <laughs> exactly and i i love that the the first movie if, if you're watching these as two separate movies the, the first movie essentially is just building up to the bride showdown with oren which if you think about is insane the movie's called kill bill not kill oren ishii <laughs> like the the whole movie is structured towards her fighting Oren, who should just be an, a, a side character, right? You know, like like Vernita Green. She comes in, she dispatches her. She's just and technically Oren Ishii is the first person she kills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she even and says so, she's the easiest to find. Like, yeah, because she's high profile. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, the, I mean, the first one gets killed just after the op- opening credits. The first one that we see get killed. Uh, and so, for any other director, Oren is just part of the storyline she's just a stepping stone to get to bill but for tarantino he structures the entire movie around it which ends with the bride taking on an entire army of you know her her foot soldiers i would say that like it's important to him that everybody that she has to go up against yeah bill has the most emotional impact for her by far but like each it needs to be important that each one of these people matters that she's facing off with and I really think I know Tarantino was trying to create what he called like the one of the best action sequences of all time in history. And I think he did it because I, I think that House of Blue Leaf sequences is one of the it's one of my favorite movie sequences. Oh, of all time. Everything about it's perfect. Um, the it's, music it's and the action. over the top. The music's great. It's funny. It's there's like slapstick comedy stuff in it. But then it ends with her fighting Oren and everything goes when the, when the, it's in that Lady Snowblood sequence out behind the House of Blue Leaves. And everything's still and quiet, and it just works so well. And then you get, and that's just volume one. <laughs> and then you get to volume two, which in, is even better, in my opinion. I like volume two even more. Uh, and the thing is, I'm going to go back a little bit to what we were talking about people uh, bitching about him not having an original bone in his body. First of all, to those people who say that, shut up. Uh, you're just trying to sound cool for a message from your friends at the cinema shock. uh, You're just, you're just trying to sound cool for not liking something that also, honestly, if you've legitimately watched uh, just real quick, uh, kill bill and you can't tell me the distinct circumstances. She took on every member of the deadly international, uh, whatever the fuck is the divas. If you can't, uh, if you can't tell me the, the weird circumstances she took on each person in, I mean, Go fuck yourself. Like you can. Yeah. Like they're they're all distinct. They're all distinct. Yeah. And the thing is, Tarantino's not the only guy who's throwing in references to other movies. There are lots of directors who shoehorn in references to other stuff that they love. Uh, and the majority of those don't work. I mean, just think of all the 80s nostalgia porn that's come out in the wake of, of the success of Stranger Things. A lot of people are trying to do this shit, and it does not work. Because they're not as good as Quentin Tarantino. The only person I can think of that references like older movies that he loves that manages to make those references work as well as Tarantino is Edgar Wright. 
he's the only one. Uh, everyone else, it's, it feels forced. It's so weird. I mean, you're, you're, I feel like you're right. I want to believe there's other people out there that are like this. Uh, but I, I saw an interview with Tarantino, which I mean, the only quote that's like stuck with me where he was just like basically giving like writing advice. I think it was part of a compilation of interviews where he was giving writing advice. But he said, if you care, like if you care about cinema, if you love movies, if you just if you just love them as much as I do, you can't help but create something decent. Like you yeah. can't like you just can't help it. And one reason that I think that it works well in his movies is that his movies aren't set in the real world. They're set in a movie world. They're set in a heightened reality. The bride is a symbol more than she is a character, just like Lady Snowblood was. I mean, remember that scene in Lady Snowblood at the beginning? Someone says, who are you? She says, revenge. She's a symbol. She's not a person necessarily. Mm -hmm. And the bride is much the same way. That's why she's not given a name until volume two, because she is she's she's more symbolic they believe her and Tar Tar tarantino's characters they, they don't talk like real people i get that i don't care because they, they sound cool they sound cooler than real people real people are boring uh T tarantino's characters yes they are more movie tropes than real humans and the yes that would be a problem if he wasn't so damn good at it well, well at the end of the I'll day that's what the, you I'll want that's what you want for movies honestly i think yeah i mean it's the same thing that worked for uh sorry todd to jump in there but that i mean even fuck man i mean let, let's go uh someone call the opposite direction i mean i think that's what works for like a kevin smith like right. i think that some of the dialogue for a kevin smith is that you don't want the people to sound like normal people. There's people that are going to want to wish they sounded like that, that they were like that intelligent constantly while they talked. Uh, but clearly... Or the Gilmore Girls. Or damn the Gilmore it. Girls. <laughs> that's what I was about to say. Yeah. Damn the it. dialogue yeah, if, is, it just works. It just works. It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, if that's what you've established as this is how our characters talk, then that's the world that you've established. Great minds think alike. There we go. So of course we, we do also have to mention we we, we brought we brought maybe. Quentin Tarantino, Gilmore Girls, and Kevin Smith together. I'm sorry. And, hey, and, you and know we what? That's that a Gilmore mashup Girls reference all the way back around. So <laughs> <laughs> of course we also have to mention the whole bloody affair. Uh, so in 2004, if you're unfamiliar with this, uh, the, in 2004 at the Cannes Film Festival, Quentin Tarantino showed a combined version of the film, unrated, with the House of Blue Leaves battle in full color. Uh, although that seems like a stylistic choice in the final film of Volume 1, the reason he changes to black and white is because there's so much blood in that scene that he would not have been able to get an R rating. So he cut it to black and white because MPAA is weird about 400 gallons of blood. Yeah, I mean, the same, it's the and, same reason that Sam Raimi no did no telling how many blood. condoms. <laughs> it's the same the reason record, that I Sam Raimi did Green Blood and Evil Dead 2 because it being green instead of red, he was able to get away with more. Which is for weird. the record, uh, the my least favorite part of Volume 1. Um, I, I And I know that he can even reference it back to like another movie, like I said. But I think it's cool, honestly. It's neat, but like part of me just still... I kind of want to see it. The moments that he that he chooses to like cut to black and white and to cut back to color are very well done. I think. I think it's a. I think it's a cool transition. Yeah, I would like to see it all in black and white. I mean, all in color instead of black and white. But they they made it work. 
you know, they made it work really well. And which I guess we should also mention Robert Richardson, who do, who is the director of photography, who does incredible work in both volumes of this. Robert Richardson, by the way, is is a legend. I mean, he's done several Tarantino movies, but he's also did like one that always comes to mind with him for me is uh, Natural Born Killers, which he does a similar technique here where like each segment kind of has its own visual style. Like the Pi May stuff looks completely different then oh, yeah. the house of blue leaves stuff the vernita green stuff at the beginning looks completely different the hospital stuff looks completely different uh it, it's really incredible work by that guy i think i want to so, do but anyway back back to the whole bloody affair though so oh, so yeah, this right. this 2004 unrated version that he showed at the con film festival was eventually became known as kill bill the whole bloody affair it ran four hours and five minutes and it's been rumored ever since that Tarantino, he's even talked about it, that he would release this version to general audiences. He even said that he had production IG, the company who did the animated sequence, working on a new animation. That And some of the animated sequence got cut out of the original cut, by the way, when uh, the, the guy gets gutted by Oren. You see like intestines fall out in the original version, which got cut out of the full cut. But they were apparently even working on a new animation that would show Oren hunting down that long-haired guy who killed her family that we don't ever see anything happen to him. And then finally in 2011, the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles, which is a repertory theater owned by Tarantino himself, they started showing the film. They first showed it on his birthday that year. Uh, And it was actually the exact print that had shown at the Cannes Film Festival, complete with French subtitles. And, but to this day, that seems to be the only place to legally view that cut of the film. Are they still showing it there? And I don't think New Beverly's open at the moment because of the oh, pandemic. I mean, but yes, you know, outside yeah, the pandemic. Todd, I don't know if you know about COVID, but and Los Angeles is not doing great. Wait, right wait, now. wait <laughs> what? <laughs> so hey, I have a, I have a. Before we move on, I have a hot take about the whole bloody affair and wanted to get you guys to weigh in because we did talk about earlier um, the big reveal uh, at the end of volume one of uh, the bride's daughter still being alive. Do you think it would have been better to leave that moment out in the whole bloody affair? So that's not in the whole when when she, Oh, it's not, it's not. So, so in the whole bloody affair, good. Cause uh, I was like, that would yeah. kind of spoil it, you know. Yeah, that 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 section is not in. Villa, that that's like the cliffhanger that keeps you coming back for more. Right, right. But in, in the whole bloody affair, that section is not in there. Nor is the recap from the bride at the beginning of volume two. She's driving like so psycho. You, so you do not know that BB is still alive until she until Beatrix arrives at the villa. Yeah. And okay, you hear her going bang bang mommy. You know, like that's when you like when she realizes it, you realize it. Okay, cool. Which is I clearly haven't great. done that's that. Perfectly. That's the way it should yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is really great. I, I think the cliffhanger works really well in the two part. Right. But in, right. in the Absolutely. full film, yes, like that is much more impactful, I think. Mm-hmm. So this is the part of the show where we get to our segment that we like to call because we haven't come up with a better name for it yet. Uh, <laughs> if you guys have any ideas, just shoot us a tweet or something at cinema underscore shock. But what I, I've got a couple, this is a weird section because we'd spent this entire film or this entire series talking about movies that could fit into this segment because these are all movies that, Hey, if you like kill bill, 
you should watch Lady Snowblood. You should watch Death Rides a Horse. You should watch Thriller. Like these are all, all these. Yeah, this is what we've been doing the whole time. <laughs> yeah, but so I'm going to throw a couple others that I think would. These are all movies that they didn't all come out after. Uh, actually, two of them, two of the ones I'm going to mention came out before Kill Bill, but they're kind of in the same vein. At least one of them is one. One of the ones I think if you that we mentioned in, in passing, if you haven't seen it, another film made by Production IG is Ghost in the Shell. The, the original animated version. Man, I was going to say that one. God damn. <laughs> it's really great. It's a really great anime. Uh, the other one I wanted to mention, though, is another movie about a kick-ass female. Uh, a completely different story, really, but uh, it's Luc Besson's uh, original La Femme Nikita, well, which yeah, is just such a, great, such a great movie. But the big one, I think, for me that came out after Kill Bill is uh, Park Chan-wook who did uh, Old Boy is probably his most well-known film. After Old Boy, Old Boy was the second part of a a trilogy or a a style, you know, thematic trilogy, the Vengeance trilogy. The third movie in that is called Lady Vengeance and it's about a woman who's framed for killing a 5-year-old boy. She goes to prison and then when she gets out of prison where she's like a model, you know, model uh, prisoner, she gets let out. And she goes on this quest for, for revenge against the man who framed her and separated her from her daughter, who now knows nothing about her. So very thematically similar to uh, to Kill Bill, and it it just fucking rules. It's a great movie. I would highly recommend Lady Vengeance, the South Korean film. Uh, seek it out if you liked Old Boy. Uh, you know you know Park's style, and it's it's just a, a really outstanding film. Well, let me allow me to bring it back to our Black Christmas uh, episodes and tell you that, well, obviously, the six degrees of Kill Bill, you already know a bunch of films you could watch in addition to this movie. But we should mention uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight. That yeah, feels- it's crazy when we watched it for Black Christmas. Like it, I was like, this, this is so similar to Kill Bill. They even both use uh, the, the same song, the song that plays at the end, the... Um, Nobody told me about her song right. that plays. Right. They're they're using yeah. the they're different versions, but yeah, I would say that. And just to just to keep it American for a second, I guess I'll throw in Sin City just because we we mentioned that not Michael Madsen's best performance, but Quentin Tarantino does uh, frequently collaborate with uh, Robert Rodriguez. He, even he also directed scene. a scene. Yeah, I was about to say he yeah. has a scene <laughs> in this movie. The stylized violence and stuff, like it's uh, Sin City works. I think. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, well, Justin mentioned it earlier, uh, but I actually had it in my notes for the f- further viewing section is uh, the documentary um, around Zoe Bell and female yeah. stuff workers. Uh, Double, Double Dare. Dare. Yeah. It's re- I I recall getting that. That was one of the uh, one of the things I got when Netflix was still mailing discs to your yep. house. I think that's when um, I saw it too. Yeah, and, and to be <laughs> honest, it's. It, I mean, it's a documentary, but so much of it is kind of like slice of life because you kind of follow yeah. her through, I mean, through that, you know, that time period. Uh, but it's really a fantastic and uh, educational watch. It's if you if you dig real practical stunts and just these over the top, you know, colorful characters, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find something better than Double Dare. Also, if you kind of dig the way uh kill bill as a whole kind of you know meshes these two genres of the the kung fu movie and the spaghetti western uh and for some reason if you haven't seen grindhouse check out grindhouse because um in addition to 
a similar structure, uh, the combined version with the uh, with the sci-fi horror element and the action revenge element, you know. Uh, plus Zoe Bell being a badass again. Yeah, plus Zoe Bell <laughs> being a badass and some really fun trailers in between. Uh, also Rosario Dawson, which yeah, I mean, is anything her yeah. ever in. Yes. And then, um, <laughs> so yeah, so check out Grindhouse. And then uh, we briefly mentioned him, but uh, check out, just, just do an IMDb search of the character uh, Sheriff McGraw. Michael uh, Parks. Michael, Michael Parks' character in this. And just look at those movies and do yourself a favor. Get have a weekend and just go through those movies because they're really a lot of fun. And his character is always <laughs> he's always he's comic relief, but he's also still kind of badass. And in Grindhouse, you actually get to see a little bit more of his family and uh and all that stuff. So I don't want to spoil too much, but yeah, uh check out check those out. Those are those are a lot of fun. Yeah. I would also say show good assassin just because I don't feel like we mentioned it in this episode that there we a whole we had a whole episode on it last week. Yeah, yeah. I know we did. No, <laughs> no, we said it, it appears in this movie. But hopefully if you've been following along with us, you were rewarded by knowing exactly what the fuck they were watching when yeah. Beatrix Kiddo and her and BB laid down in bed at night. Yeah. You saw they well, my were watching wife, show good assassin. My wife turned to me and she was like the fuck is she want to watch shogun assassin and i said she loves honey, it honey remember who her parents are she goes oh, okay yeah yeah yeah. let's remember who her parents are this is going to bring up two uh i, I want to bring up two new segments i think we should use all the time and one of them is only going to be difficult if it happens and one of them is just going to flow naturally uh i just because I, I i was happy with this i was so happy with this movie just watching it again i just was ecstatic just seeing it and uh two things willem scream my wife now i yes. taught her what the willem scream was like yeah. a couple of months it's, it's ago great and now she one. points it out and so i think we should point out anytime the willem screen is used <laughs> i think that's that, that there's did it appear in this movie yes it does in the house of blue leaves the willem scream is used twice I think. twice yep <laughs> so yeah yeah uh, i love it so i think that should just be a thing we should point out the willem scream yeah. twice <laughs> Bull, house of blue leaves you can if you don't know what the willem scream is i guess just look it up but <laughs> okay, look it up know or it. once you hear perhaps it, perhaps never we do it. perhaps we should do like a separate episode just on what the willem scream on is the willem scream. just a little tidbit <laughs> about the willem scream yeah. the history of the willem scream that would be fun actually that's, that's that would be idea. fun that would be um fun. My other segment idea that I have that I'm curious about for you guys is best movie moment. That's what I wrote it down as. But what is the best movie moment from what of you this saw? Movie? Yeah. What oh, What dude, is the best? Is... What's your favorite? Jeez. What's your that's favorite honestly, part? That's very tough in this particular movie because this movie is so filled with just iconic moments one after another to me all right we'll take a uh, second if i have to if okay, i have to pick one if i have to pick one it's gonna be the end of the l driver fight the uh ah. the plucking of the eye yeah just the way the God music the music and everything in that scene and then daryl hannah's 
like just flailing around. Fly, yeah, just, <laughs> just around. I love you so much. That is 100%. If you could see my notes right now, that is what I wrote down for mine is, yeah. uh, is, is the eyeball like Beatrix plucking the eyeball from L driver. That is my favorite moment of the movie. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> like of both movies. That's my it's favorite. Feel, it just moment. feels, it's so satisfying. <laughs> runner up for me by the way was i just want david carradine to make me a sandwich yeah and cut off the (laughs) edges yeah Yeah. with the the biggest knife possible (laughs) right (laughs) something about him making that sandwich i was like this is this like a fucking fantastic sandwich good looking bologna and cheese i'm in right (laughs) um i for mine um and i'll go i'll go more the comedic route i like Again, I'll go back to the um, the scene with uh, Hattori Hanzo and his assistant in the uh, in the cafe. There's a point where Hattori Hanzo has grabbed his finger, and they are just back and forth. But then they move really quickly to the other side. And of she the bar, ducks her head. And she ducks. She ducks <laughs> in perfect time. And I'm it's just amazing. And it's it's such a subtle physical comedy moment. But it is. But it's also it's also sort of thing is just like. That was brilliant. I know it's, it's also it's glossed it's, over, but it's so great. It's like an insight into her character because she's yeah. such an aware character as a warrior that uh-huh. she's ready for that. Even, you know, uh-huh. like it's, there's a lot of stuff in that scene where if, if you're watching her face in that scene, like mm-hmm. when they're talking her, in Japanese and she's pretending she has she's at this point pretending not to know Japanese very well, right. but you can see it on her eye that in her eyes that as they're arguing, she understands it and she's almost about to laugh at their argument yeah uh it's really <laughs> great like that, that her performance in that scene once you've seen this movie as many times as i have like you start picking up on those things and you're like every little thing about it about her performance is so good i also love there's something about in that scene when he throws his knife against the magnet on the wall yeah <laughs> it's, it's so cool why is that so cool why is that so cool but it is <laughs> Yeah, well, it's I just mean, a matter I, of like, I, like I know that he actually like really did that. dive deep. I could just like all of Pai Mei, like it just yeah, sure. him fucking so jumping good. up on the sword, like yeah. it's just yeah, like the whole thing, like just everything about Pai Mei and Beatrix Kiddo together was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. yeah, so well, I think that's it for Kill Bill, guys. That's it for our entire six degrees of kill bill series this was a long episode but we knew it would be because there's a lot to talk about it's two movies so we doubled it up uh but we we want to appreciate you guys uh following us along on this entire series it's been really fun i've been really into it uh and uh but we're we're changing direction next week we're going back to different now got something completely different we started this podcast with a series with a horror movie series. So we're kind of going back to that with, with our series next week. Not all of these movies that we're going to be talking about. Well, I guess all the movies we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks are going to be uh, going to be horror, but uh, we'll, this is going to be a fun series. This is actually a series that we're kind of splitting up over the course of the, the next several months. We're not going to do this all like in one big uh, chunk. And we have our reasons for doing that, which will be apparent later down the line. But starting next week, we're starting a new series called The Tragedy of Toby Hooper. Uh, This specifically is The Tragedy of Toby Hooper Part 1, The Beginning, which is going to trace him from Texas Chainsaw all the way through Poltergeist. So we're starting next week with the classic, oh my God, one of my favorite horror movies of all time, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
I think I think that that is one of the best horror movies of all time. So I don't think it's even just exclusively yours, Justin. I don't. No, it definitely isn't. It definitely is not. <laughs> uh, a, but it is. It's a movie that I love very. very I think much. you're crazy if you don't think. I mean, to this day, from the seventies until now, it is still legitimately one of the creepiest fucking movies yeah. that ever so, existed. Yeah, it's it's like in my top three horror movies of all time. I would say. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about it and to really dive into the making of that film because there's some pretty crazy stories behind the making of that one. Toby so Hooper is into, behind it. Toby Hooper yeah. made it. And, and so we're really going to dive into yes. the career of Toby Hooper and the the you know the kind of acclaim that he got after Texas Chainsaw and how it didn't particularly pan out very well for him, unfortunately. So yeah, it's, it's going to be a good series. Uh, so we'll talk about that next week. Of course, you can go on and watch uh, Texas Chainsaw with us. That one's pretty easy to find. But if you hit up cinemashock.net, we'll have links to where you can find it. And uh, you can join us next week. While you're at cinemashock.net, you can subscribe. You can buy our merch. You can find everything you need to find out about the show, including where to follow all of us on on the uh, the social media sites. But just for our listeners' convenience, Gary, where can you be found on the internet? Hey, Matt, this is Gary Horn on all of the things. I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the things, and my show can be found at Computer Resume on all of the yeah. things. Yeah, hopefully by the time this episode's out, I think your first episode will be, have been dropped. Uh, yeah, I think if so. If all goes according to plan, yeah. yeah. And I am at Justin underscore Bishop, and you can find the podcast at Cinema underscore Shock everywhere, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Find us on Facebook. And once again, at cinemashock.net, rate, review, all that stuff. Tell all your friends. If your friends like Kill Bill, if your friends don't like Kill Bill, maybe we'll convince them. I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> but we'll, do our, we'll do our best. We'll at least tell the story well. And until next week. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys. You understand? <laughs> That's good. See, I like that one. It's the first one I've liked in a while. <laughs> there we go. Oh,